I don't know what I'm doing. Do any of us? <laughs> really? <laughs> I so don't know what I'm doing. I like 99% deleted, of the time. I deleted the entire thing I worked on all last night. But the great news is you can Google how to restore and it's very easy to restore. So while I like lost my shit for a couple of moments, like control Z does nothing. Like it was like, oh shit. Your program is fucked if control Z doesn't bring your shit back. It's a different, it's a different program. It's not like some buttons are where I don't expect them to be, but it looks like it'll be pretty great to work with once I learn it better. Well, hello and welcome to the Welta podcast. Where every Wednesday we question our reality and ask just what the hell is it we're talking about. I am Samantha Kane, known on the interwebs as the Belladonna Cosplay. And uh, my question for this lovely segment is, how weird do you want it? Because I can make it really fucking weird. And she do. Yeah. Hi, I'm Drea, known on the interwebs as Drea Butt. My segment is called TMI because I like to overshare about taboo myth and invisible stories i also do a phrase which i've got two this time that you can pick which one you want Ooh, okay i'm excited about that switching it up i missed it at least once i feel like multiple times and i personally love that bit so i'm bringing it back baby bring it back baby all right well as our title suggests this episode is called killer queens and we're not just talking about the song we're talking about actual killer fucking queens. This shit, I learned about this a few years ago, and I'm not kidding. This woman has lived rent-free in my mind ever since I, her name was uttered to me. Like, this woman, I'm surprised that, like, there aren't, like, multiple movies about her. Like, holy shit. Now seems like a good time for it, because I know that... Really good time. The <laughs> little snippets that I saw was that she was extremely tall and, like... yeah. Stacked. A huge person. So, like, let's have it. Huge is in, like, burly. Like, she was a fucking badass. Like, like owned Nordic a hog farm. Big Nordic Viking. Viking woman. Yeah. Owned a farm full of hogs. Did all her own work, but still could, like, dress the fuck up and be like, money, let's go. I so. <laughs> love it. I love it. Tell me more, please. So, a lot of this I took from Steve Raminsky, who's the director of the Gunness Mystery documentary. Belle Gunnis, also known as Hell's Bell, the Black Widow, Lady Bluebeard, or the Hell's Princess. Wow. Wow. Wait. <laughs> Repeat those again. Her titles include Hell's Bell, the Black Widow, Lady Bluebeard, and Hell's Princess. I think Lady Bluebeard is my favorite. Do you know the history of Bluebeard? Some, yes. So, for those who don't know, Bluebeard is a French folktale, the most famous surviving version of which was written by Charles Perrault and first published in Paris in 1697. It tells the tale of a wealthy man who marries women and then he murders his wives in order to marry more wives. And the story is that of a wife who doesn't want to tempt the fates of the wives before her. So, Bluebearding is like multiple wives taking their shit and then keeping on marrying. She's the female version of this. Hells yes. Yeah. I can't wait. Oh boy. To hear more about this incredible person. Hey. Oh, we missed the water. What are we talking about? 
I went straight into it. You I'm watched so it. We didn't, we didn't even do like our little I, like current events, pop culture. Like, I'm too what excited is, about what, it. What it is that we we are up to? Which I mean, our D and D campaign <gasps> on next week. Dark Galaxy Gaming is next week. It starts week. in less than a week. Twelve and I cannot wait. The art for this is amazing. I think that we're all excited to role play together. I think that there's been so much scene setting that y'all don't even know about. I've done so much homework for this. It's incredible. And I'm excited. I am so excited. Very so excited. Tuesday nights, 10 p.m., Dark Galaxies Gaming yes. on Twitch. Find us there for this awesome campaign called Legacy of the Hellriders. Ah! Hey, Sammy. Hey, Drea. What are we talking about? We're talking about America's most notorious unknown serial killer. Ooh. Why unknown? I don't fucking know why people don't know about her. It Is it blows because she's my a mind. Woman? God, it might be because she's a woman and it was like the early 1900s. Born Brynhild Pazdatter Storth on November 11th, 1859 in Selbu, Norway. Wow. She was the youngest daughter of eight children, born to a stonemason, Paul Peterson Storset, and Bert Oldstater. Eight is too many kids. I'm also really glad that I got all that right on the first, first run. First take. First take. Bravo. Just give me Norwegian names hell, and I'm good to go. Hell yes. <laughs> okay. She was raised on a small farm in Indigat, Norway. And grew up to be a physically very strong woman, standing six feet tall and weighing over 200 pounds. Stacked. Stacked. A story tells that Belle had an affair with a local man who was much wealthier than her family, so he was a class, if not two classes, above her. So that's Scandal. like a big no-no in that time period. When he found out that Belle was pregnant with his child, he tracked her down at a local dance, took her supposedly into a barn and beat her so badly that when he repeatedly kicked her in the abdomen, she miscarried. So after this took place, people in the local town Hamlet village said that Belle was never the same after that day. Like, um, yeah. as you would. <laughs> like, something had shifted so entirely in Belle that she was almost a completely different person after this event. As you would yeah. be. That is incredibly violent yeah. and upsettingly tragic. And he mysteriously died shortly after. Yeah, I bet he fucking yeah. did. <laughs> yeah, I bet he fucking did. He just kind of like kicked the bucket. They say, like, one account says that he died of, like, stomach cancer, but, like, he wasn't, like, a nobleman. He was just, like, higher class. So there's no real account of, like, what actually went down with him. She then went to work as a servant on several wealthy farms over the next few years, and then in 1881, at the age of 22, she followed her sister to America, where she tried to Americanize herself by changing her name to Belle. She made her way to Chicago, where she again worked as a servant for a time, and in 1884, she married Mads Albert Sorensen, who was also Norwegian, and the two later opened a confectionery store. Ooh, yeah. How lovely. But. How quaint. Yeah. Cute little slice of paradise in, in the U.S. of A. Uh, but business didn't go so well for the confectionery store. So it mysteriously burned to the ground. <laughs> and they collected 
piles of fucking cash because back in that time period, the way insurance worked is that really, if your business burns down, you get paid for it. And she fucking went with this shit and supposedly burned down several of their houses to collect the insurance, then discovered how life insurance worked and convinced Albert to take out a second life insurance policy on himself. They bought a home with the money and had four children living in the house, though there's no record of any of the kids actually being her kids. What? Why? Yeah. But why would you have it's, kids living in your house so if they're it's, not your kids? Back then, like, people died literally all the time. Oh. And they would be, like, orphans or, like, foster kids or, like, friends' kids. Or, like, for instance, she had one little girl in the house named Jenny Olson, who's the only one that they have a real account of where she came from. Her mother died young. I think Jenny was, like, five months old when her mother died, and the dad was, like, a Marine for the Norwegian kind of, like, naval stuff or whatever, whatever Norway did back then. And he couldn't take care of her and her three siblings, so they were just, like, scattered to the wind. Supposedly, over the years, Jenny's family wanted to get her back, but Jenny was, quote-unquote, so happy with Belle that she stayed with her. So. I mean, mom's got a handle on it. Yeah, like, Belle just became mom but uh caroline and axel both died as infants under bell's care from acute colitis symptoms include nausea fever diarrhea and lower abdomen pain and cramping which are also the same symptoms as poisoning bell collected life insurance on both babies someone practicing some shit to account for the children on june 13th 1900 Belle Gunness and her family were counted in the United States Census in Chicago, recording that she was a mother of four children, though two of them were already dead. And they recorded Myrtle and Lucy in the house and accounted for Morgan Couch, who later was known as Jenny Olson. I don't know what the fuck these things were going on back then with these kids' names, but, like, there was just kids. Be whoever you want! Like... Just people's children. And, of course, like, the way that people... Like, it's the early 1900s. I mean, this is right around the time of, like, Spanish flu and, you know, whatever else fucking shit's going on. So, like, people are just dropping, like, flies at any given point. And... So they're community kids. Community kids. I mean, there's another story that I really want to go over where a girl was just left in the care of this woman and she did unspeakable things to her and the whole neighborhood got in on it. It's... We'll get into that later. So, Bell, like I said, convinced Albert to do two life insurance policies on himself. On July 30th, 1900, the one day that his two life insurance policies overlapped, died. Ha! What? (laughs) And they just, they paid out without asking? She got $8,500, which, in today's terms, is a quarter of a million dollars. The... Wow. Uh... And this is just the first one. This, well, she already killed the two kids. Well, they already got money for the kid. Yeah, so this is first husband. She's already killed two babies. She's already burned down X amount of houses, including a confectionery store. Just collecting money. Insurance game, baby! So this shit, this shit. So there was no real autopsy performed on him because the family doctor said that he had a quote-unquote enlarged heart. Belle was so distraught at the loss of her husband that they believed that it was just fucking a normal death. A month later, his brother comes demanding an autopsy. And so they dig up his body 
and they're like, okay, well, we can run all these tests and like we can test his stomach, but it's going to cost you an additional $300. And he's like, nah, that's too much money. Ah! And didn't do the test, which could have proven that Belle poisoned him ah! and just didn't do it. So she got away with that shit. Well... They said that he had cerebral hemorrhaging or an enlarged heart, which is actually something that happens from fucking poisoning. <laughs> so when she collected that money, mm-hmm. uh, she realized that the neighbors were starting to get suspicious of her because, like, babies have died. Yeah, it's time to go. Bye-bye. So she saw an ad for a farmhouse in the outskirts of LaPorte, Indiana. So she leaves Chicago and goes to Indiana with these three kids in tow. This home has a really weird history. In 1846, John Walker built the home for his daughter, Harriet Holcomb. The Holcomb clan were supporters of the Confederacy, while the citizens of Laporte were the Union. Nearly two decades passed before the unpopular clan moved to New York, leaving the farm to change a dozen hands until 1892 when it was bought by a brothel keeper. So it became a brothel. First, it was with for Confederates in Indiana, which is pretty north in this country. And then when they fucking bounced, <laughs> I love that, the, the, comes that they it. were an unpopular clan. Like yeah. I can just see like 1800s Indiana, where they're like, we don't fuck with them. Yeah. <laughs> Maddie Altick, a madam from Chicago, bought the property and transformed the farm into a popular, well-appointed whorehouse. Hell Many of yeah. her. <laughs> Hell yeah. Many of her regular customers from Chicago made trips to Laporte. Their money helped to add a jetty, boathouse, and large carriage house to the property. Hell yeah! After her death, the house changed hands four more times until 1901 when Belle Gunness moved in. Shortly after her arrival, the boathouse and carriage houses mysteriously burned down. Oh no. What a tragic recurring accident she just really likes fire i can relate (laughs) i'm loving this lady when she was preparing to move from chicago to laporte she became reacquainted with a recent and i mean recent as in like three days recent widower named peter gunnis who was also from norway gunnis was a butcher by profession and bell and him were married in laporte on april 1st 1902 after only two months I don't know what is so magic about this woman's pussy, but, like, she can get her claws in people and, like, that marriage. Hooked them. Money. Hooked them. I, like... Playing that game. And when you see pictures of her, and I'll say even, like, later in it, it's that, like, when they see her on the farm, she's wearing, like, men's overalls and she's covered in pig's blood and just, like, hauling hogs. But when they see her, like working men in town she's in like the best dresses and her hair is all done up and she's like what a looking real fly queen. and it's what like what a fucking queen what i love it tell me more oh my god just one week after the ceremony peter's infant daughter died of uncertain causes while alone in the house with Belle. oh no there's something going on with this woman but there's no real like there's only a few recorded babies that are hers like, a lot of the children that come in and out of the house were not her kids. Let us remember that the beginning of her story is a, a man. upper-class man beating her until she miscarried their baby. Yeah. That. That's the beginning they of the story. They had had, like, oh, they had had this whole relationship beforehand that he was consenting to. The second she had a baby, he beat it out of her. Mm-hmm. So, 
Now we're coming for the money. And babies are a form of getting that money. I mean, life insurance. (laughs) I mean, when she's had that kind of a start, it all connects. So her and Peter were married in April. Week after infant daughter dies, she collects the insurance on the infant daughter. Then in December of 1902, same year, Peter dies in a tragic accident where, according to Belle, he came in the house. He was warming his slippers by the fire in the kitchen. So as he was trying to put on his slippers, he bumped a pot of boiling brine that she had on the stove to make sausages and scalded the back of his neck. Freaking out from said scalding, he bumped into a shelf and knocked a sausage grinder off of said shelf and smacked him in the head. A sausage grinding machine, as she called it. He said that he felt so disoriented that he decided to go lay down. Then hours and hours passed and she went to check on him and she thought he was sleeping. Uh Uh-huh. Air quotes. Mm -hmm. So she sent one of the farm boys to go get help, and it turns out he had just been dead in that bed from the moment he laid down. Or just dead. she tossed some water on him, bashed him over the head, yeah. drug him to the bed, and left it as it is. Just left him. A year later... Who's going to tell you otherwise? Right. Who's going to say anything else? She was so distraught. Like, she was crying and, and, and oh, this, my husband, why does this keep happening to me? This woman, actress of the century. Listen. She keeps hooking him and she keeps getting away with it. Yep. Everyone believes her completely distraught over these unfortunate accidents. His death netted her another $3,000, about $81,000 today. The district coroner reviewed the case and unequivocally announced that he had been murdered and conveyed a coroner's jury to look into the matter. However, she had successfully convinced investigators that she was innocent of any wrongdoings. Oh, uh, uh, the judge was like, no. That's a murder. No, she killed him. And everybody else is like, I don't know. I really want to believe this lady. There's one story, and they believe it was Jenny Olson, that she told a classmate that her mother beat her father over the head with a cleaver and killed him. Shortly after, well, before I get to what happened to Jenny after that, a year later, Peter's brother, Gust, took Peter's older daughter, Swanhild, to Wisconsin. She's the only child to survive Belle. Is her name really Swanhild? Swanhild. Oh, okay. Swanhild. These are all Norwegian people. Gotcha. She kept it, she kept it Norwegian. She knew how to hook them. She probably was like, hey, let's speak the, our native tongue, and they were like, "Oh, this is lovely." <laughs> he tripped and fell I on don't a knife. <laughs> get this opportunity often in America. <laughs> oh no, he fell on a knife fifteen times. Oh no. <laughs> oh no. In May of 1903, Gunnis gave birth to a son she named Philip. So we know that she gave birth to a kid in May of the next year. One of the historians was like, she conveniently left out that she was pregnant for, like, the right moment. Uh, Because then she would get sympathy for the baby, but then, you know, she just gave birth. I mean... In late 1906, Belle told neighbors that her foster daughter, 16-year-old Jenny Olson, had gone away to a Lutheran college in Los Angeles after she was seen fraternizing with Emile Greening, a young farmhand hired by Belle. Oh, my. Emile 
had begged Belle to have contact with Jenny. He's like, can I please have an address? Can I, like, talk to her? Like, he basically was falling in love with this girl. Mm -hmm. He was, like, 17, 18 years old. And she's like, well, if you write her some letters, I'll send them to her. She let this boy write her letters for months. We'll find out later what happened to Jenny. Classic. Classic. Parents say, oh, yeah, Yeah. you go ahead and write them, and I'll make sure they, they get them. Yeah. Months. No reply, obviously. In 1907, she employed a farmhand, Ray Lampier, to help with chores. Word soon spread of their relationship because <laughs> Lampier was running around boasting of sleeping with his employer. Well, <laughs> that'll do it. Lampier, though, would not be enough for Belle. She wanted something more and then began to look for new suitors by inserting the following advertisement in a lovelorn column of newspapers in large midwestern cities and i quote personal comely widow who owns a large farm in one of the finest districts in laporte county indiana desires to make the acquaintance of a gentleman equally well provided with view of joining fortunes no replies by letter considered unless sender is willing to follow answer with a personal visit Triflers need not apply. Not <laughs> the gold digger here. Triflers need not apply. And her MO essentially was she would specifically pick out men that didn't have like a whole lot of family. Like she'd start writing letters back and forth with these men, mm-hmm. find out like if they are lonely, basically tell them to take all their money out of the bank and come be with her in Laporte. And they would fucking do it. She would convince them to take all of their cash, cash only. She would say, sew your cash into your pants so that you won't be robbed on your way here. (laughs) Several middle-aged men of means responded to Guinness's ad, and within no time, Belle was often seen going for carriage rides with strangers on Sunday afternoons. On those occasions, Belle would wear the finest clothes with her hair adorned in the latest styles. Usually accompanied by a handsome man, she was unrecognizable from the rough farm woman the locals were used to seeing. I just, I love that part. I love it! One of these men was John Moe, who arrived from Elbow Lake, Minnesota, He had brought more than $1,000 with him to, quote-unquote, pay off her mortgage. Doesn't she own that place? Gunnis introduced him as her cousin. He disappeared within a week. (laughs) (laughs) Humblet was gone. (laughs) Is she, like, figuring out what to do with these bodies so she doesn't have to, like, have these autopsies? We'll get into that. Like, is that, is that what she's up to? She's like, okay, phase two is get rid of the body. Get rid of the that body. That way they can't ever ask how it happened. Well, she does have a hog farm. That is the answer to all of her problems. <laughs> if you can put two and two together, folks. <laughs> if she can find a place to store those teeth, she's great. <laughs> Sorted. Next came George Anderson from Turkeo, Missouri, who said he would pay the mortgage off if they decided to wed. Late that night, while sleeping in the guest room, Anderson awoke startled to see Belle, quote-unquote, standing over him, peering into his eyes and holding a candle in her hand. He stated that the expression on her face was so sinister and murderous 
that he let out a loud yell, and she immediately ran from the room without uttering a single word. <laughs> She's about to set his ass on fire! She was gonna fuck him up. She was doing fin down before it was cool. Hell yeah! Except you end up dead, so consent's kind of questionable. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Feeling terrified and uncomfortable, Anderson believed that Gunnis intended to murder him. What's wild is there are so many people in this story who just outright say she murdered them. No, she tried to poison me. No, like, she did do this, but, like, nothing happened. But nothing. so many other people are like, she's, she's amazing. Fine. She's incredible. <laughs> like, Look how distraught she is. Like, I'm pretty sure she tried to murder me, but he just left. <laughs> like, didn't say anything. Jumped out of bed, threw on his clothes, left. As you do. Never returned for his belongings, nor did he ever speak to her again. <laughs> he was like, you know what? I got away with my life. That's enough. Great white buffalo. <laughs> I wonder if she remembers him as, like, <laughs> the one that got away. Like, her, the rest of her life, she's like, that fucker got away. Like, not even upset, or not even, like, thankful that he didn't go to the authorities. Just like, could have killed him. Right? Oh, I should have killed him. him. Like, the one... Like, none of her murders matter because the one. <laughs> the suitors kept coming. He was the only one that got away. None of the suitors that were seen with her ever left the farm. She began... <laughs> what is her number? What is her count at this point? It's, like, so many. She... Like, easily a dozen at this point. She... Her suitors just keep disappearing. She then started ordering large trunks to be delivered. <laughs> Anyone? Oh my no God. one. You know what's funny? There were probably people who were like, that's, the, you know, like that's, that's strange. Sus suspected what was going on, but this lady is a stacked house that you, you cannot fuck come with her. Right? Like, what are you, what are you going to do? Well, there are men disappearing on the farm. She's ordering large trunks. She keeps the shutters closed all day. It's a farm of pigs who eat everything. How? Who could have done it? This is an unsolved mystery. Oh, no. What is <laughs> happening at that farm? One no. of the websites was literally, literally unsolved mysteries. And I was like, there's nothing unsolved about this. Like, <laughs> no. Judge had it the right the first time. She killed that man. Oh, God. Ol B. Budsberg, an elderly widow from Elola, Wisconsin, appeared next. And there's several in between, but these are the only names that we legitimately, like, have on record. Because they had sure, family. Sure, sure. sure. <laughs> there are untold men that just disappeared around this time because... Well, one of her huge M.O.s was that she would prey on Norwegian men that came from Norway, didn't have any family, had all their money, but, like, barely spoke English. Like, she would utilize Norwegian right? newspapers. I was going to say, she's speaking yeah. their language. Yes. That's part of why they're hooked. They're like, oh, I can't speak this with anyone except you, yeah. my beautiful belle. Yo, she had a way with words. I love it. He Drop was... those rich-ass men. Drop them. He was last seen alive, so old B. Budsberg was last seen alive in the Laporte Savings Bank on April 6, 1907. <laughs> He's last seen alive in a bank! <laughs> and then we never saw him again. again. 
He was mortgaging his house in Wisconsin, <laughs> signing over the deed <laughs> to Bell, and obtained several thousands of dollars in cash. <laughs> Bud's sons had no idea that their father had gone to visit Gunnis. <laughs> when they finally discovered his destination, they wrote to her, and she promptly responded, saying that she had never seen their father. <laughs> Hide your dad. Hide your kids. She don't give a fuck about she nobody. She don't give a fuck. She even responded to them and was like, nope, never seen him. Never seen him. Nope. Don't ever write me again. <laughs> Certainly don't ever visit. <laughs> Do you think it's the Norwegian lady who's murdering men? The huge lady with the axe? <laughs> you ask her. Right? Right? No you. No you. <laughs> I love it. How many All kids the cops? does she have with her at this point? Is it just... The there's one? just there's just Is random there kids. Some- no, there's like four there's, or five kids. They keep cycling through? There's at least four or five. She came there with three girls and had a son. And I think at this point there's another kid on the property that doesn't work there because she has kids working on the property. Wow. Yeah. She just has kids. Wow. She just, just running everything. She's fucking, just running it. Like, she was involved in a, a Norwegian orphanage back in Chicago. Like... For some She's reason. She's working the Norwegian card to the max. Like, the local police department draws straws on who's going to go out to the farm. Oh, um, absolutely. <laughs> who's going to question her this time, boys? Not it. Not it. Not it. Several other middle-aged men appeared and disappeared in brief visits to the Gunness Farm throughout 1907. Hello, goodbye. Hello, goodbye. It's the townspeople, yell. They've got to see this parade of men, and they go one or two ways. They're like, huh. This is the most entertaining thing for for LaPorte, Indiana. I'm hoping that there were young girls going, right? Taking notes. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck. Learn foreign language. Oh, my God. Hook men who speak language. December of 1907. So she's been doing this. Fuck. When did her husband die? They got married in 1902. He died in 1902. So she's been at this since about 1903 to 1907. Oh, all those men in four years? I am thoroughly impressed. I mean, don't hate the player. Hate the game. I I love that her, I mean, people died. Like, she, a lot of people died. Even some, children. She did some <laughs> poisoning, but, like, for these men, she just oh, oh, brute force... Oh bashed him on the head. We find out. Because she can. We'll get to what she does with these men. We'll get there. Because we have accounts now. December of 1907, Andrew Helgeline, a bachelor farmer from Aberdeen, South Dakota, Dead. wrote... <laughs> I know his fate. Bachelor I don't... farmer? I don't well, need crystal he ball. He might last a little longer because he's an actual farmer, so he can help work the land before. This is, this is my Miss Cleo crystal ball. Your future, I see. You don't be dead. Dead. <laughs> dead. Come to Miss Cleo. Me not tell you your future. You don't dead. die. <laughs> She's like on the way to Bell's house. You're dead. This is some bad juju. Like, on her driveway that's long. So, Mom, did you have lunch on you, Dad? She warmly receives his letters. The pair exchanged many letters. Then a letter that was found at his house from Gunnis in January of 1908 read, 
as such. To the dearest friend in the world, no woman in the world is happier than I am. I know that you are now to come to me and be my own. I can tell from your letters that you are the man I want. It does not take one long to tell when to like a person, and you I like better than anyone in the world I know. Think how we will enjoy each other's company. You, the sweetest man in the whole world. We will be all alone with each other. Can you conceive of anything nicer? I think of you constantly. When I hear your name mentioned, and this is when one of the dear children speaks of you. <laughs> I hear your name because I've told my children about you and they'll talk about you and then I hear or, your name. Or I hear myself humming it with the words of an old love song. It is beautiful music to my ears. Woo. My heart beats in wild rapture for you. My Andrew, I love you. Come prepared to stay forever. Ah! Oh! Forever is like a week. This, yeah, forever. You're going to be in bitch. the ground and be here forever. When the children say Ooh, your name. That, the children ain't saying shit. That is some <laughs> shit. All right, kids. This time it's Andrew. Andrew, don't forget. Could you imagine a guy showing up and they're like, hello, Doug. Wait, Donald, no. Andrew this time. Oh, shit. It's like the scene in Game Night. <laughs> yes. It's like, oh, yeah, you work at Sephora. And she's like, I work at Forever 21. Nope, 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 nope. Different girl. No, they look the same. Nope, different girl. Same look, different girl. Yep. <laughs> the best. Oh, God. In response to her letter, he rushed to her side in January of 1908. He had with him a check for $2,900, his savings, which he had drawn from his local bank. A few days later, after he arrived, he and Gunnis appeared at the savings bank in Laporte to deposit the check. Check. Check, not cash. At this point, people around the town that, like, were authority figures or in, like, buildings and such that they would go into started to report that, well, gossip that Belle was having problems with her farmhand, Ray Lampier. Ray was deeply in love with Gunnis. <laughs> having problems, all right. And performed any chore for her, no matter how gruesome. He was... Uh, like, like feeding the pigs? No matter how gruesome how a chore. Gruesome. You know, I feel Is like... Is she getting him to kill people now, too? I like, feel like the locals, when they say no matter how gruesome, don't truly understand just how gruesome. No, no, no. They saw him shoveling pig shit, and they were like, that's, that's gruesome. That's gruesome. They don't know the half of it. <laughs> the pig shit's full of teeth. Fuck. Don't mind the teeth. Fuck. He was jealous of the many men who arrived to court his employer, and up to this time had endured most of these attentive strangers. <laughs> However, when he was introduced to Andrew, Belle's new husband-to-be, he made a scene and Bell promptly fired him in February of 1908. Well. A few days later, Helgeline disappeared. But, but, Gunnis appeared at the bank to make an additional $1,200 deposit. I mean, at this point, folks. Woo! I think the bank is, is partly responsible for the amount of I turnover mean, from this, like, how many men are you having her? We not. This is like our local bar that we take all our Tinder dates to. Like you should be paying attention to this at at some point. But like, like yeah. But like times ten because you're <laughs> accepting their money and then they never come back oh, and then she's shit. got someone else Yo, in there with her. I just like, realized low key like we kind of take a page from Belle's book because like we always go to Dogfish with our dates. Well, we did. 
Yeah. Well, we did. We don't anymore because COVID's still a thing. One, we moved. We moved. And yeah. two, it's COVID because yeah. there's actually a dogfish around the corner from here. Yeah. I bet you. I, yeah. I can't I mean, wait I to make friends there. with the bartenders there because that was such a part of my life. Whenever we have enough vaccine for everyone, for everyone, because I'll be at the bottom of that list, I can't wait to go take a string of dates yeah. to our, our local I took, dogfish. I took one there that I'd like to take back. I never take one back, so but I think I I got one I'd take back. But yeah, our old bartender at the other dogfish, oh, he caught on. He'd pay attention. Oh yeah. He knew. Oh yeah. <laughs> like I would fucking have conversations with him while the guy went to the fucking bathroom and I'd be like, Yeah. How's this one doing? Exactly. Like yeah, how you doing? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, having, having a good time. Oh, he yeah. made a he made a mention to me one time, he's like, you know, you kinda like have the same conversation starters and I'm like, Yeah. <laughs> point <laughs> old faithful baby <laughs> how dare you Shit. call me out on that <laughs> that was great how dare you notice i was like the, yo it's a formula okay <laughs> i've condensed myself into these talking points and they work they work Shortly after she fired lanfier she presented herself to the laporte county courthouse declaring that her former employee was not in his right mind and was a menace to the public. Oh, Lord. The tables are turning. Oh, Lord. Somehow, she convinced local authorities to hold a sanity hearing. Somehow? We know how. We know exactly how she convinced us. Same she knows, way she run it. We know exactly what happened. I, I just, I respect this woman in a way, the but hustle. I don't want to because she's killed children. The like, hustle. It's just, it's so interesting. I mean, also, but, like, perspective, when you're talking about people are dropping like flies and leaving children behind, their fate? Well, uh, the suitors that she's been killing over the years don't have children. Exactly. That's a, that's at least a good thing. She's exactly. not, like, call, bringing these men to the farm and then just, like, keeping their she, children. Yeah. She yeah. had her kid-killing phase early on to process her miscarriage, and then she's done with it now. But also, like... It's one thing to kill, Ish. like, these men's children. It's another thing when it's... Nope, that's a terrible thing to say. Nope, I was nope, say, nope, it's nope, nope. Thing nope. When it's the drifter children. <laughs> what? <Who's> dr <laughs> what? Drifter children? <laughs> Your parents are dead and you have nowhere to be. Like, the street was going to kill you one way or another. Drifter children? <laughs> what else do you call them? Orphans? I just, do you imagine that these children are, like, showing up to her farm with this stick and, like, the little sack tied to it that's red with white spots and they're just, they're dusty and got little, like, broken overalls? Is that, that's the drifter child? No, I think one of the other drifter children is like, hey, this spot is good. It's <laughs> like, the good food spot. is really good. The beds are soft. It's warm. Like <laughs> all the drifters. Some kids, people they're in the back of a train together, like chilling in the hay, and they're like, "Hey, hey, the gun is farm." People just disappear overnight, but that's part of the gig, man. Don't worry about it. <laughs> you roll those dice. You know what I'm saying? You hear this shit in the middle better. of the night. You say nothing. This is better than the sidewalk in the rain. <laughs> I'm. I... Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna walk that back again in a minute. Um. <laughs> oh God, I don't know. I don't know if I would go on a murder and spree when I when I got wronged so badly like that. Like, hmm. poor broken person. 
So they had a sanity hearing <laughs> for life year. For not though. And he was pronounced sane and was released. A few days later, she comes fucking back and says to the sheriff that he had visited her farm and argued with her. And then she contended that he posed a threat to her family because she got all these damn kids and had him arrested for trespassing. I bet he's not going to that farm. He came back again and again. Apparently he, he just actually? continued. To, yeah, he continued to just return to the farm I mean, he's over and her. over and over. And she'd just turn him away. She'd rebuke him. In love. But he confided in neighbors, saying, Helgeline won't bother me no more. We fixed him for keeps, is what he was quoted in saying about the husband-to-be that disappeared. Helgeline's brother, Asel, was disturbed when he found out that his brother had failed to return home, because unlike all the other suitors that she had coming through, she tells them, don't say anything, don't tell anybody, like take all your money and come and a lot of them don't have brothers that can come knocking he left a note for the brother and said this is exactly where i'm going this is who i'm marrying this is what's happening i'm going on these dates i'll return on these dates like (laughs) this is why you have a buddy system when you meet strangers from the the internet internet. (laughs) or from the the newspapers and mailbox this is the 1900s version of like hey i'm going on a tinder date buddy (laughs) this is where i'm gonna be let somebody know somebody needs to know be and who you gonna be with it's like umbrella academy in season two where she's like i left a note (laughs) so the brother wrote bell asking where his brother was probably replied i've never seen your brother she had a whole correspondence with the brother for like months she just kept writing the fucking brother. Maybe she's gonna get him too. He told him that he was not at the farm and probably went back to Norway to visit relatives. Which the brother was not fucking convinced of at all. He's like, no, he wouldn't do that. He would have told me if he was going home and I would have gone with him. Bravely, Gunnis responded that if he wanted to come and look for his brother, she would help conduct a search. But that if she was involved... <laughs> brother would have to pay her for her efforts. <laughs> if you're gonna come look for your brother on my farm, you need to come pay me so I can help you search for him. Holy shit! So here's where shit gets dicey. Here? After, here? <laughs> here? Dicey? So, after she wrote him the letter to come investigate, she immediately presents herself to her lawyer telling him that she feared for her life and that of her children, who are not actually her fucking kids. But over the years, I think, like, more kids appeared, so it's possible that she... Because she definitely had sex with these men. So like, I mean, how else? It's possible that some are hers, but, like, there's just fucking kids. At the end, though, there were four children in the house. Okay. Goes to the lawyer, says that Ray is threatening her. She fears for the life of her kids. She wants to immediately get her will put together and signed and documented. She's like, I want my will done today. In her will, she leaves the farm to the kids. But if anything were to happen to the children, then all of her assets and things will go to an orphanage in Chicago that's Norwegian-based. Sure, 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 sure. Then she doesn't go to the police telling them about Lamphere's alleged life-threatening statements. She just tells the lawyer in an offhand of like, oh, he's threatening me, I need my will done, and then leaves. In... February of 1908, 
So kind of backtracking a little bit because she fires Lamphere in February after Helgen Helgelin shows up mm-hmm. and then he disappears in February. So she hasn't been seeing any suitors except for this one guy since February of 1908. She had hired a new farmhand named Joe Maxson. Maxson, the night after she goes to the lawyer, noted something strange that they had dinner, they played some games, and then she presented each of the children and him an orange. He states that he literally thought she was trying to poison him. Like, he just straight up said, I think she was trying to poison me. So, he, and he doesn't like oranges, so he nibbles on the orange to be nice. The kids all eat their oranges and everybody goes to bed. He says that that night he felt, like, extra drowsy. Mm. He wakes at 4 a.m., on April 28th, 1908. Does he check for the kids? If he thought he was being poisoned, shouldn't he go check the children in the morning? I mean, he said, like, afterwards that he thought she was poisoning him. Like When but, he found out about the kids? So, this is what happens. 4 a.m. of April 20th, 1908. He smells smoke. Oh, <laughs> His room is in an addition of the house, so the farmhouse itself is brick. His room is in a wooden-based addition on the other side, like back of the house and it's above the kitchen he smells smoke there's flames fucking everywhere his door is locked (laughs) can't get out so he crawls out the window in his fucking underwear and he starts like like going to the neighbors of like holy shit bell's inside the kids are inside we got to do something he gets a ladder goes around the other side of the house where the kids bedrooms are beds are empty and at this point the fire is consuming the farmhouse so he's got to go so he leaves Next morning, they come with cops and, and fire trucks and all the, all the jazz, you know, all the stuff that happens after a massive fire. The entire farmhouse is a pile of char, and it's just smoke remains. The floors of the house had collapsed, and they found four bodies in the back corner of the cellar beneath the remains of a grand piano. You trying to tell me these kids woke up in the night in the fire? And went Linda, to listen. the basement Linda, to listen. hide under a piano? Linda, listen. One of the bodies was that of a woman. The body, flesh, which was badly burned, was intact. They thought, it's Belle. Mm. The head that was missing. That ain't Belle. The head was missing. Oh. <laughs> it's someone who crossed her. The body was five foot three and 125 pounds. And yet, they couldn't figure out if this was or was not Belle. That's not big enough to be for, for more than just, like, looking at the body. No, they, they tried to conduct investigations. They even brought someone in who someone claims when they were looking through the ashes and piles of this guy that they hired had picked teeth out of his pocket and threw it on the ground and then went, oh, this is Belle's teeth. It's Belle's body. How are you going to have teeth and no head? They ain't no goddamn head. So also, sloppy. how the fuck did this bitch lose that how? many inches? She's six foot tall and the body is and five half three. her body mass. And it's just laying in the corner of the fucking basement with the bodies of the children. And the head gone. And the head like, is gone. Like, if this is just a fire... 
they they literally these fucking bumbling idiots in Laporte, Indiana, kept conducting fucking investigations to prove if this was or was not Bell Gunnis. I can tell you right now, me who quit criminology, me who switched my fucking major, who only went to half of a class, got high and left, that ain't fucking Bell. <laughs> me who I never took any of those classes, <laughs> the math don't work out. That's not what the fuck feminine bone loss it can be chalked up women shrink in fire and lose their heads and lose their heads mysteriously you know how this stereo works they this lose their shit, heads I like I it this to, this is why it lives rent free is that all of these things all of these fucking things and they still still okay on site was county sheriff Albert Smutzer Smuts. This man doesn't do anything. Who had heard about Lanfear's alleged threats. He immediately concluded that the fire was no accident, but rather an arson and murder. He then set two of his deputies digging into the debris to find the head, which was never found. Because it's gotta be here somewhere, folks. Head was never found. Gotta be here. At the least flesh was intact here. enough. At, at least But the head is gone. It's at, here somewhere. At least they they knew the head missing was murder. At least they knew that. Thank God for that. Head's missing. They're looking for the head. He sends two detect sorry, he sends two deputies to go get Lampier. When the handyman was brought in, former handyman was brought in. He denied having anything to do with the fire, claiming that he was not near the farm when the blaze occurred. However, a neighborhood boy said that he'd seen him running down the road from the Gunnis' house just before the structure erupted in flames. So he was arrested and charged with murder. The three bodies of the children were Myrtle, age 11, Lucy, age 9, and Philip, age 5. So Philip, as we know, is her actual kid. Mm-hmm. Myrtle and Lucy came with her to the farm. So, Myrtle and Lucy, cool. Questionable. I mean, they made it to the end. Thank Is that God. The end. I mean, they're dead. Yes, their end. <laughs> yes, their end. Oh boy, this lady. Oh God. Oh God. This... Several neighbors and friends viewed the corpse, including two neighbors, and said it was not Belle. Hello, it's not. Local dentist stepped in, stating that if any dental work could be found, that he could make a positive identification, which is why they brought in the investigator to find the teeth, and supposedly the teeth just appeared. It's also known that Belle had false teeth at this point in the game. So, those teeth... The investigation is ongoing. Assel Helgelin, the brother... Let's not forget the fucking brother. This is why it needs to be a fucking movie, because the twist of the brother, like, I'm gonna find... My brother, coming. She told me to come. I'm fucking showing up. I'm gonna find him. He shows up in Laporte. Tells the sheriff that he thinks his brother had met an untimely death. Foul play was involved. Something fucking happened to his brother. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He also stated that Andrew had answered the ad that had been placed by Belle in a Norwegian language newspaper. In her reply, she offered true love, a life of wedding bliss, and also mentioned a quick thousand dollars that she needed to pay off a mortgage. Which is her M.O. Helgeline became even more convinced of foul play when he went out to the ruins of Belle's home and watched the men digging for her head turn up eight men's watches, assorted bones, and human teeth. 
He searched through the property on his own and shouted to the men to start digging in the rubbish hole that was located in the hog pen. As they began turning the earth... Oh, the rubbish hole in the hog pen. So now we are finally digging in the hog pen. Ooh, lordy. So many teeth. They found four bodies. Mm-hmm. All of them skillfully sliced apart and wrapped in oil cloth, and one of the bodies was indeed his brother. Then Joe Maxson comes forward with information that could not be ignored. He told the sheriff that Gunnis had ordered him to bring loads of dirt by wheelbarrow to a large area surrounded by a high wire fence where the hogs were fed. He said that there are many, many deep depressions in the ground that had been covered by dirt. These filled in holes, she had told him, contained rubbish. She wanted the ground made level, so he filled in the depressions. At the same time, several farmers who had traveled past the farm at night reported to see Bell digging with a shovel in the hog pen. At night. (laughs) She timed her departure pretty well. Sheriff Smutzer then took a dozen men back to the farm and began to dig on May 3rd, 1908. The diggers unearthed the body of Jenny Olson, who had vanished in December of 1906. According to a fucking article in May of 1908, the same year that they dug her up, the boy that liked her had already reported that he had been sleeping in the house when he worked there, when Jenny was still there. Mm -hmm. And one night in September, it was a Friday in September, a man and a woman came to the house. Gunnis asked him to go sleep in the barn, and she claimed that the man and the women were a professor and his wife from a Los Angeles college, which Jenny was attending. And they were spending the night at the house and it would require his bedroom. In the morning, Jenny's gone, the professor and the wife are gone. Gunnis complains that they left on an early morning train taking Jenny along. In the same hole as Jenny is the body of that woman. I really want to know. Also in that hole is the body of Ole Budsberg. She needed to be feeding them to the pigs. See, that's where she went wrong. I really want to know if, like, since she had this man and woman over, like, if some, like, hanky-panky took place and then she just fucking murdered them. Like, just had this couple, need the spare bedroom. Because, like, Lamphere reported that she would have part of her thing would be to kind of, like, you know, black widow these guys. Like, fuck. <laughs> that is the worst threesome that's, ever. That's the one time she was like, you know what? Let's get, Let's get a woman in there. Let's have a couple. Let's get a couple in here. Let me see if I like it. So as the days progressed and the work I'll continued. Kill them when I'm done anyway. Yeah, exactly. Kill them when I'm done anyway. As the work progressed and the days continued, one body after another was discovered in the hog pen. These bodies included Old B. Budsberg, who vanished May 1907, Thomas Linbo, who had left Chicago and had gone to work as a hired man for Gunnis three years earlier, Henry Gernhold of Scandinavia, who had gone to wed her a year earlier taking $1,500. A watch corresponding to one belonging to Gernhold was found with the body. Olaf Svenherd from Chicago, John Moe of Elbert Lake, Minnesota. His watch was found in Lamphere's possession. Olaf Lindblom, age 35, Wisconsin. Lots of Olafs. Benjamin Carling of Chicago. He was last seen by his wife in 1907 after telling her he was going to Laporte to secure an investment from a rich widow. He had with him $1,000 from an insurance company and had borrowed money from several investors as well. In June 1908... His widow was able to identify his remains from Laporte Cemetery by the contour of his skull and three missing teeth. 
contour of his skull must have been very distinct. The unidentified bodies and unsolved mysteries that would emerge from these ruins would make headlines across the Midwest. More reports of missing men began to pour in from surrounding Midwestern states, and relatives began to appear from all over the region to claim bodies. All of them told of lonesome brothers, uncles, and cousins answering Bell's matrimonial ads and traveling hopefully to Laporte with their life savings stuffed in their pockets. Some of these were most certainly additional victims, though never proven. Christine Hinkleman of Dover, Wisconsin, who sold his farm and came to Laporte in 1906. Charis Nienberg, a 28-year-old Scandinavian immigrant who lived in Philadelphia, told his friends he was going to visit Gunnis in June 1906 and never came back. He had been working for a saloon keeper and took $500 with him. John H. McJunkin of Coropolis near Pittsburgh left his wife in December of 1906 after corresponding with a Laporte woman. Olaf Jansen, a Norwegian immigrant of Carroll, Indiana, wrote his relatives that he was going to marry a wealthy widow. Bert Chase of Mishawaka, Indiana, sold his butcher shop and told friends of a wealthy widow and that he was going to look her up. His brother received a telegram, supposedly from Aberdeen, South Dakota, claiming Bert had been killed in a train wreck. His brother investigated and found the telegram was fictitious. Also, Aberdeen, South Dakota is where one of her other victims is from. A hired man named George Bradley of Tuscola, Illinois, is alleged to have gone to Laporte to meet a widow and three children in October of 1907. T.J. Teethland of Minneapolis is alleged to have come to see Gunnis in 1907. Frank Riedinger, a farmer of Wisconsin, came to Indiana to marry and never returned. Emil Tell, a Swede from Kansas, alleged to have gone in 1907 to Laporte. Lee Porter of Oklahoma separated from his wife and told his brother he was going to marry a wealthy widow. Johnny Hunter left Pennsylvania on November 25th, 1907 after telling his daughters he was going to marry a wealthy widow. Abraham Phillips, a railway man of West Virginia, left in the winter of 1907 to marry a rich widow. A railway watch was found in the debris of the house. Reported other unnamed victims. A daughter of Miss H. Witzer of Toledo, Ohio, who attended a university near Laporte in 1902. An unknown man and woman are alleged to have disappeared, the ones that disappeared the same night as Jenny Olson, claiming that he was a professor and the wife had taken Jenny to California. A brother of Miss Jenny Graham of Wisconsin, who had left her to marry a rich widow, but vanished. A hired man from Ohio, age 50, name unknown, had disappeared and Gunnis became the heir to his horse and buggy. <laughs> An unnamed man from Montana told people at a resort he was going to sell Gunnis his horse and buggy, which were found with several other horses and buggies at the farm. They're very useful. Most of the remains found on the property could not be identified. Because Ooh. of the crude recovery methods, the exact number of individuals unearthed is unknown. Fourteen victims were pieced together. There is an estimated number as of many as 40 victims on the farm. On May... In like four years. Yeah. At least 40. People just disappeared. Like... She had a quick turnover. Fuck. On May 22nd, 1908, Ray Lamphere was tried for murder and arson. He pled innocent to all charges, his defense hinging on the assertion that the body was not Gunnis's. Lamphere's lawyer developed evidence that the bridge work that was found may have been planted for the teeth. Wait. She's rolling like a 90s rapper. Stacks of watches and a shed full of cars. 
I keep that watch. It's a nice I watch. I fucking love it. Woo! That's a nice watch. Weird. Anyway, it wasn't the Honestly, nice Norwegian lady. If anybody went missing between 1902 and 1908 and claimed something to do with a widow of any kind in Indiana, they probably ended up dead on <laughs> Belle Gunness's farm. Like, I like it's one thing that she went for all these like men, but then she was like, "There's a few get, women. Let's get some horse and buggies." Yeah. <laughs> While we're at it, you're broke as fuck, but I want your horse and buggy. I'm taking your horse and buggy. You only got 500 bucks. Bye. Do you think one day she woke up and she's like, hmm, this is a good Tuesday. I could use another horse and buggy. <laughs> I'm bored. Let's get another horse Let's and buggy. Let's write a love poem to someone with a horse and buggy. Oh my fucking God. Woo. So they were able to use the account that the, the teeth were planted so he was found guilty of arson, but acquitted of murder. November of 1908, he was sentenced to two to 21 years in a state prison in Michigan City, Indiana. He died there of tuberculosis in December of 1909. So he was only in prison for like barely a year. Wow. Yeah. A reverend came he forward. Got, got anyway. A few weeks after his death, a reverend comes forward with a confession that Lanthier made to him before he died. Oh boy, what'd you help with, buddy? This is this is the confession. Lanthier revealed the details of Gunnis's crimes and swore that she was still alive. He also swore to the Reverend, as well as fellow convicts, that he had not murdered anyone. However, he had helped Belle bury many of her victims. When a victim arrived, she made him comfortable, charming him and cooking a large meal. She then drugged his coffee, and when the man was in a stupor, she split his head with a meat chopper. At other times, she would simply wait for the suitor to go to bed and then enter the bedroom by candlelight and chloroform her sleeping victim. The powerful 48-year-old woman would then carry the body to the basement, where she most often dissected it, bundling the remains, and then buried them in the hog pen. At other times, she dumped the corpse into a hog-scalding vat and then covered the remains with quicklime. And worse, according to Lamphere, if she was overly tired, she would chop up the remains and feed them to the hogs. She was also known to have, like, many, like, like dozens of sacks containing pieces of different victims in different places. Like, she would purposely cut them up and, like, switch around pieces of their bodies and, and just scatter them so that you couldn't, like, that's why they couldn't piece them together because she just had them all over the fucking place. And they were just little divots, little rubbish holes all over her property. Slice them up. She's fucking crazy. She married a butcher, didn't she? One of the early guys yeah. was a butcher? Yeah. The, the she second husband was a butcher. took notes. Lampier also cleared up the mysterious question of the headless female. Belle had lured this woman from Chicago on the pretense of hiring her as a housekeeper only days before she decided to make her permanent escape from Laporte. Gunness, according to Lampier, had drugged the woman, then bashed her in her head. Once dead, she decapitated the body, tied weights to the head, and disposed of it in the swamp. She also smothered the children to death and carried them into the basement. She then torched the small brink farmhouse and fled. Lampier was apparently said to wait for her at a designated place on the road after the fire was set that they could run away together. She played him to the end. She never showed. She played him to the end. Instead, he said he saw her cut across an open field and disappear into the woods. He saw her? (laughs) 
<laughs> she said, deuces. I bet, I bet he didn't just see her cut across the field. I bet he followed her, but this lady cannot be stopped. And so that's when he went to the police. By his account, she murdered 42 men and had taken amounts from them ranging from $1,000 to $32,000. By the time she disappeared, he estimated that she had accumulated more than $250,000 through her murder schemes over the years. About $6.7 million today. Holy shit! Investigators had checked her bank accounts, and though there were small amounts remaining in one of her savings accounts, the money in all other accounts had been completely withdrawn shortly before the fire. Over the next several decades, Gunnis was allegedly cited in various cities across the nation. This huge lady doing the Terminator run through some wheat, and all he did was think, that's what I love about her. <laughs> she can do it herself. <laughs> Yo. <laughs> the fact that he didn't, all, like, out her. The fact that he, he never did. Love, just like they all were. Until, until his deathbed. Are you kidding me? Well, if if he couldn't be with her, he could at least help her live. As late as 1931, Gunnis was reported alive and living in a Mississippi town where she supposedly owned a great deal of property and lived her life as a prominent citizen. Another report in 1931 suggested that she may have been a woman known as Esther Carlson who was arrested in Los Angeles for poisoning August Lindstrom a Norwegian-American man for his money. Two people who had known Gunnis claimed to recognize her from photographs that were in possession of Esther Carlson, but identification was never proven. Carlson died in May, so she was arrested in February, died in May of 1931 while awaiting trial. Wait, so they supposedly arrested her and she died while awaiting trial? Mm-hmm. They arrested, they arrested Esther Carlson, uh -huh. who several people said Was looked like Belle Gunnis. And she died awaiting trial. Yeah. She knows poison way too well for that to just... Oh, she outed. She was like, oh, it was a good run. I had real, a good run. Had a real good run. I mean, run. it's 1931. Like, she's... 30 years. Hang on, hang on, About 30 hang years. on. She was born. First one was in... Her first husband was 1902. Hang on. To 31 means damn near 30 years. She was born in 1859. Wait, what? Yeah, she was born in 1859. So, so how was... old would she have been in 1931? Oh my god, almost like 80. Yeah, she had a good run. <laughs> wow. In the belief that the headless 70s. corpse... I wrote it up. In the belief that the headless corpse was, in fact, Belle Gunnis, she was buried next to her first husband, Mad Sorensen, at Forest Home Cemetery in Forest Park, Illinois. <laughs> this poor woman. Oh, no! <laughs> even if it was her, why would you bury her there? She doesn't want to be there. She doesn't even remember that guy anymore. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Update. In November of 2007, with the permission of descendants of Bell's sister, the headless body was exhumed from the grave by a team of anthropologists 
and graduate students from the University of Indianapolis in an effort to learn her true identity. It was initially hoped that a sealed envelope flap on a letter found at the victim's farm would contain enough DNA to be compared to that of the body. Unfortunately, there was not enough DNA, so the mysterious remains unsolved. Not Belle. We know it's not Belle. Uh, Ooh, before she played everybody. 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 The bankers didn't even do shit. Like, it's one thing for the neighbors to be like, she is too big to mess with. But the bankers are like, that's your money now. Like, she was raking in the fucking money for years. Well, and they didn't say shit. And then she took all her money out right before the fire. As a cis male who has his own buggy, I think she's innocent. <laughs> this is like, this is a lesson. Everyone learned. was in love with her. This Did is you a see lesson. Scandalous. This is a lesson learned. <laughs> uh, quick side note: If you want to know more about Belle, I literally just ordered this book. I'm very excited to read. I gotta start fucking reading. I don't read enough, but she's got like a laundry list of books for me to read. I gotta read those. But I ordered. Hell's Princess. It's a book chronicling Belle's life as well as actual court cases and court accounts and like things that were said. Like it's someone who really broke down everything. I want I want to know the judge. The judge that was like she murdered him. She fucking I, murdered him. I want that one. And then I just, and then I want to hear everyone else be like no. I just want to know what Belle's response was to it. Like I want to know what Belle did in that moment. But this was recommended to us by James McKenna, a.k.a. Chill Hartman. Uh, he's, hey! We played him, I guess. We played, him, yeah. And he's interacted with us on Twitter and been very supportive and yeah. wonderful. Chill, so. is, Chill Hartman is amazing. Go follow him. Uh, he does movie nights, which I haven't had a chance to check Ooh, out, but fun. super fun. So that... <laughs> Is the story of Belle Gunnis. Wow. What, I, was, what was her... Her name? Yes. What was she... Her, her, her birth name? Yeah. Was Brynhild Paulsdatter Storset. Brynhild. I mean, Brynhild... I mean, Belle Gunnis is a name, but Brynhild... Brynhild. Fuck. Wow. Fuck. Fuck. Hey, Drea. Yeah. What are we talking about? This one is less killer and more queen, but she was accused of being a killer. Her story is a wild ride. We're all about wild rides tonight. Y'all better strap, <laughs> strap the, the fuck, fuck in. in. Jesus Christ! Wild is in forty-two bodies found on the property. <laughs> that kind of wild? Not quite that wild. So now we will go backwards in time from the 1903 back to the 1300s. Ooh. Good year. Didn't people dance until they died then? I don't remember. I, I don't remember either. I, I think it's... that was 14 something. It's happened several times in several different eras. Like it happened in the 1200s, I think, first. It's a bunch of children. I don't know. Dance plague. It, well, speaking of plagues, the black plague is in this one. Feels appropriate. Yeah, it does feel appropriate. And she goes through a bunch of husbands. This is very appropriate. We did this on purpose. <laughs> Synchronized subject matter. 
This is part of a series written by Anne Theralt and hosted by Long Reads. It's a continuous series called Queens of Infamy, and this one that we're doing today is Joanna of Naples. This series, Dre has covered this series before, and it's fucking incredible. Look at the images like, that we've got this time. Fucking God. Oh my God, I love it. Including the Plague Doctor mask. If you thought four mostly crappy husbands, vengeful Hungarian cousins, and the Black Death could cramp this queen style, think again. <laughs> she said, fuck around and find out. This first paragraph hooked me. Because I knew that you were doing a serial killer mm -hmm. woman. And I knew I was going to do a woman, but this, like, really, like, felt... Are you the sort of person who loves a high court drama with plenty of devious intriguing? Yes. Is learning about grisly murders one of your guilty pleasures? Yes. Do you get a voyeuristic thrill out of tracking the rise and fall of royal romances? Absolutely. What about plagues? Do you like plagues? No. If you are current... <laughs> Used to, not anymore. Not anymore. It's too close to home now. If you are currently clutching your chest and muttering, yes, yes, a thousand times, yes, then A, sick, and B, keep reading. Is that sick, S-I-C? S-I-C-K. No, okay. Sick. sick. Keep reading. Or keep, keep listening, reading. in this case. We're about to take a deep dive into the life of Joanna I of Naples, and shit's about to get really, really Joanna. So Joanna is the name that she's known through history, but it's Giovanna in her mother tongue. Can we can we stick with Giovanna? Because every time you say Giovanna, Joanna, mm -hmm. I'm gonna sing Joanna from Sweeney Todd in my head. And Are I, you sure? I can do Giovanna. Let's do that. Because Sweeney every Todd time is I just her fucking name, there. I will switch it to Giovanna. If I can do that, you can use correct pronouns. Giovanna was born in 1326 to Charles, Duke of Calabria, and heir to the Kingdom of Naples, and Marie of Valois. Although she was Charles and Marie's fourth child, Giovanna was predeceased by her three older siblings and became second in line to the throne at birth. A member okay. of the Angevin dynasty, Giovanna was the great, 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 great granddaughter of Eleanor of Aquitaine. Which we've covered. Whom we've covered. Yeah, that's on our Patreon. Mm -hmm. That's a kick-ass story. Hell Yo, yes. Eleanor of Aquitaine fucked shit up. Hell yes. And this is great, 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 great granddaughter. Five greats. Five greats. <laughs> Five greats granddaughter. Fuck. Like Eleanor, she would prove to have a knack for ruling. And also, like Eleanor, her ambition and capability would threaten the powerful men around her. Perhaps unsurprisingly, both queens found themselves having to run for their lives. Giovanna's flight, which involved escaping her besieged castle under the cover of night and then undertaking a dangerous journey across plague-ridden seas, all while pregnant, Wait. mind you. Fuck. That's... That's a lot. Might be less famous than that of her predecessor, but it's arguably an even more incredible story. Why don't... Because we always focus on, like, when you hear about a royal having to escape, the first thing you think of is Marie Antoinette. Yeah. Why don't we have this? Like, that's, you have to escape your castle in the middle of the fucking night. You gotta escape the plague, and you got a baby on board. Yeah. All while pregnant. 
Or a lot of her stuff is after just giving birth, which to me feels even more exhausting. Okay, (laughs) there's a lot of women back in, like, these early time periods who would just, like, pop a baby out and then go do some shit. Like, what's her face? Anne Bonnie? Yeah. Anne Bonnie had a baby below deck as a war was raging on her ship and just rolled the fuck out there. No. <laughs> that lady was on another level. God, we gotta do a drunk history. We gotta her. do it in Bonnie. <laughs> we gotta dress up for that one, too. Yes. Oh. 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 All right. Some people need to, to get stabbed. Giovanna. Giovanna was raised at the Neapolitan court by her grandfather, King Robert the Wise, and his second wife, Sancia. Ooh, wait. Sancia? S-A-N-C-I-A. I wonder yeah. if that was inspiration for Sansa. We literally have a Game of Thrones mention in this because she, because one of the best parts about her her retelling of these stories is she gives like super millennial dialogue to these characters. I love for it. Moments, it's highly entertaining. It's engaging. It's very engaging, and it's a way to learn about things that's not stuffy and and fucking the way that like not teachers but how curriculum uh-huh. wants to teach it standardized testing. because i've had some teachers try to like flip around curriculum and make it really engaging yeah. the blessed teachers but like the way that this shit's in books it's like yeah i love the story my brain will remember all those details but when it comes to dates my brain just does not hang on to them yeah. it takes a lot of work for me to do that so history was a hit or miss that and you have teachers who are like, let me have you, like, help you wrap your mind around mm-hmm. this history rather than memorize this shit. Or the teachers who spend more than one semester just talking about World War II because that's the only thing that we ever fucking talk about. Giovanna's father had died when she was just eight months old. Her mother, who was pregnant at the time of her father's death, had given birth to Giovanna's sister, Maria, in 1329 and then died in 1331. Ooh. Robert taught Giovanna and Maria how to rule, and Sancia attended to their spiritual needs, but most of their care fell to a woman named Philippa the Catanian. This woman. The Catanian. Mm-hmm. That Catanian woman. I was so tempted to call it Catanian because it's spelled like Catan- I-A-N. Someone let the Catanian woman in. Catanian. <laughs> the Catanian woman. <laughs> Listen to how boss Philippa is. Philippa was a one-time wet nurse who, after a meteoric rise in the royal court, had become something akin to a foster mother to Giovanna and Maria. She had been an impoverished Sicilian laundry maid until a twist of fate had landed her in the household of Robert the Wise's first wife. Always one to press any advantage she might have, Philippa had quickly made herself indispensable and then used her charm and beauty to further her social position. I love this bitch. While the Sicilian. Former, yeah. While the former laundress was elbowing her way through the medieval patriarchy, a young man named Raymond of Campagno was similarly rising in the king's estimation. Raymond was Ethiopian and had been brought to Robert's father's court as a kitchen slave. He somehow managed to win his freedom and work his way up to the position of head chef. From there, yes! <laughs> from there, he was quite improbably made a guard of the king's wardrobe. Wait, wait. Started from the bottom. Now we here. Started in the kitchen, cooking He's... some food so good and delicious. They made him head chef, and then guard somehow of wardrobe. promoted to the guard of the king's wardrobe. 
Does that mean he got to pick out what the king wore? That's exactly the impression I got. Like, this man had style, and the king was like, come on out of the kitchen. This is so good. <laughs> Eventually, he would be appointed royal seneschal and become a close advisor of the kings. Raymond and Philippa married. You know Raymond wasn't his real name. That's okay. I mean, it's not, but like, for intensive purposes, yeah, it's all right. Raymond and Philippa married, and through royal favor and shrewd money management, became incredibly wealthy. By the time Giovanna was born, Philippa and Raymond were a power couple who, in just three short decades, had risen from poverty and slavery to become two of the most successful people in Naples. In the 1300s, here's some dialogue for you. Raymond, I love you, babe. Philippa, as much as you love taking money and property away from rich white people? Raymond, LOL. Philippa, Raymond, maybe next year we'll buy Portugal. <laughs> Boss! Maybe next year we'll buy Portugal. Maybe. At the royal court in Naples, Giovanna learned from her grandfather everything she needed to know to be a monarch. Robert the Wise was a good teacher, and, as his by name suggests, a good role model. Naples was stable and prosperous under his rule, and he was a patron of the arts and of higher learning. Most of Robert's success as a king was due to his astute statemanship, but at least a small part of it was due to climate. His reign came at the end of the medieval climate optimum, mm. which is not something that I knew about. A historical period where slightly warmer temperatures had led to higher crop yields, an improved economy, and a population Damn. boom. So, like, he, by no doing of his own, was a good king. Yeah. All right. Yeah. This. this was especially true in Naples, which was a major player in the international grain market. So Naples was having popular. A good time. Yeah. This ain't Naples, Florida. No, it is <laughs> not. <laughs> Even though things were going pretty well in Naples, Robert had decades-old Hungarian problem to worry about. You see, for most of his childhood, Robert had not been his father's heir. That honor had gone to his older brother, Charles Martel. When Charles Martel died in 1295, his young son, Carobert, should have been next in line according to the law of primogeniture. But national security in Naples was a bit dicey at the time, and the king had decided to name his oldest surviving son heir in lieu of his grandson. Anyway, Carobert would inherit the crown of Hungary through his grandmother, Mary of Hungary. So everything was chill, right? Um, are we gonna glaze right past the name Martel? It's a Game of Thrones name. Is it? Yeah. Oh, the House The Martells. Martells. Nice. Okay. All right. Okay. I see what you were doing, whatever the fuck your name was. I forget the guy's name who wrote Game of Thrones. He's irrelevant to me now. Okay. So. <laughs> I was about to think of it. He hasn't finished the book, but he's irrelevant. So everything was chill, right? Predictably, everything was not chill. After being passed over for the Neapolitan crown because of his youth and inexperience, King Carobert had, ironically enough, turned into one of Europe's most formidable warriors. He also had heirs to spare, sons Louis, Andrew, and Stephen, as well as several daughters, and was still furious that he had been denied what he believed to be his birthright. In an attempt to resolve this problem and stave off a possible Hungarian invasion, Giovanna was betrothed to Carabere's son, Andrew, with the stipulation that Andrew's heirs would rule Naples. They're but related, right? Yes. Okay. 
There's cousins later. Don't get hung up on it yet. Gross. Uh, with the stipulation that Andrew's heirs would rule Naples, but he himself would only ever serve as Giovanna's consort. Giovanna would retain ultimate power throughout her life, and her children would, through virtue of being raised in her court, be Neapolitan enough to rule Naples. This last part was especially important. A big part of the reason people disliked Carabere and his sons was that, in spite of their heritage, they were just too, well, foreign to rule Naples. The Neapolitans held a strong bias against the Hungarians, believing them to be rude, hairy barbarians. The idea of a Hungarian on the throne upheld their fragile sensibilities. Giovanna and Andrew were married in 1333, when she was seven years old, and he was six. So we made this piece, 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 piece. What the fuck is that wedding? With children. Well, I'm about to tell you. <laughs> Robert drew up an illustrious guest list and organized an elaborate ceremony that involved an exchange of vows and even a brief kiss between the children. There are better excuses to kill a pig. The opulence of the event was as much a power move as it was a tribute to Giovanna's rank. Robert hoped that his pricey display would demonstrate to Hungary and any others who might be intriguing for the crown just how much might he wielded. This is annoying. So... <laughs> Of money. Well, not to be outdone. After the wedding, Andrew remained in Naples while his parents returned to Hungary. Before leaving, Carabere made sure his son had a well-appointed suite of rooms and a large Hungarian retinue, including a doctor, a furrier, and several sommeliers. A furrier? Because heaven forbid a six-year-old be served inferior wine. Yes, a furrier. That, I went to furries. A six-year-old being served high-quality wine is... A disaster in my mind. Like a drunk six year old. Six year olds are already terrifying. But Hungarian. get them drunk, Hungarian, royalty. royal, six, drunk. He's going to be the king of Hungary. What happened to Hungary when he got older? Did it did it do well? <laughs> Maybe he'll die. From Robert's perspective, keeping his new grandson-in-law around was a smart move. It gave Andrew the chance to learn the customs of the Neapolitan court and eased his transition into his new role. From Giovanna's perspective, it meant that she almost certainly came to view her husband as an obnoxious younger sibling. Because he's a year younger than you. I would not want to be in that fucking castle. At seven and six. Dealing with those two fuckers. Do you imagine having to serve them? She's, no. like, built to rule a kingdom, and he comes along with his Hungarian staff. Could mm. you imagine having to give one of them a spanking? Couldn't do it. No. <laughs> Andrew had a difficult time growing up in the court of Robert the Wise. He was isolated, lonely, and bombarded by anti-Hungarian sentiment. Unsurprisingly, he grew into a surly and intractable teenager who felt very hard done by. Of course. In all caps. Well, capital letters for you. Yeah, no, fucking. By all no. accounts, he lagged behind his wife when it came to social and emotional maturity. Pretty normal for teenage boys who apparently haven't changed much since the Middle Ages. And by the time he was 15 and Giovanna was 16, they still hadn't consummated their marriage. Well, I mean, they're children. Yeah, but 15 and 16 is old for those times. Right, but if they weren't, like, lovey-dovey, like, 
cutesy. Like, she views him as a brother. Like, of course they're not. She's gonna be like, fuck you. Get away from me. She's fucking other people. Yeah, no, get away from me. (laughs) Meanwhile, Giovanna's cousins, the Toronto boys... T-A-R-A-N-T-O. The Toronto Boys. Toronto. Oh, the Toronto Boys. Toronto Boys. The Diggy Donders. Had just returned from Greece looking extremely dreamy. Boccaccio, years before writing The Decameron, described the Tarantos as having remarkable beauty, as well as possessing a notable excellence that made them exceedingly pretty to those that looked at them. If Europe had been a suburban high school, the Tarantos would have been the quarterbacks, and Andrew would have been the band geek with an awkwardly patchy beard. Hey, don't knock the band geek. They gotta try extra hard to learn how to kiss. In 1343, Robert the Wise died at the age of 68. In a will written Not very just- wise. Mm. <laughs> 68 is old for that time. Just kidding. Hey, he raised Giovanna. <laughs> Real well. Yeah, okay, yeah, 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 cool, 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 yeah. Making it to 70 is hard now. It is, not gonna lie, I thought about it, and I was like, wait, that's, that's a really long time back in those days. I forgot it was the 1300s. 1343! He's practically a god. The Black Plague (laughs) has yet to come! It is coming! In a will written just four days before his death, he appointed a special council to help Giovanna rule until she was 25. The Naples Robert left behind, however, was not the Naples he had overseen at the height of his power. The medieval climate optimum had ended around 1300, and Europe had been beset by endless rain and poor crop yields. A series of famines beginning in 1339 had weakened the general population. Mm. 17-year-old Giovanna, whose ability to govern was already considered doubtful because of her age and sex, came to the throne at an incredibly precarious time. And, of course, that's counting against her. and But it's her fault as a woman. Yeah, those crops, man. Oh, no. We have a woman in she the throne. She it up. She made it rain with her... With her... Snatch. With her slutty ways. Apparently, <laughs> a lot of historians snatch. just call her as, like, oh, she was pretty and she was slutty and that was it. It's like, fuck mm, yeah. No. I'm a goddamn she was queen. I'm gonna so be much slut. more. Slut dragon! Andrew, drunk on the heady power of toxic masculinity... And maybe on all that wine his sommeliers were giving him, decided that he should be king. No. <laughs> this was unsurprising, considering that he had been raised on the idea that Naples was rightfully his. While Robert had been alive, forwarding this agenda would have been impossible. Now that he was gone, Andrew took advantage of what he and his family perceived as a vacuum in power. Andrew, I'm very mature and cool. Total king material. Extremely capable of handling my own shit. No, you're not. Right, Mom? (laughs) Elizabeth of Poland. Of course, honey. Can you call the Pope and tell him to let me be king? Anything you want, dear. Ooh. Oh, this is a Joffrey moment. Pope! So, uh, hey, I talked to your mom. So, uh, hey. So, uh, hey. I talked to your mom. I guess you can have a crown or whatever. We'll do a whole ceremony. Make you feel special. (laughs) Andrew strums a cool riff on his lute. Aw, fuck yeah, I'm gonna be king! Pope. But Giovanna will still be the boss. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. What What the fuck, dude? Whatever happened to bros before hoes? Isn't that, like, the church's motto? Pope. 
Actually, Jesus had many female followers. But look, since I'm a nice guy, I'll give you a special dispensation so that you alone in all of Naples can eat meat on fast days. That's just as good as being king. I gotta go. Yo, Pope's... I would like to to do an episode on just popes because oh there there's a pope that declared a war on cats and that that is uh, speculated to be as to why the plague started. Oh, because we talk about starting a war. <laughs> yeah, there's a pope that was like we talk about the pope starting a war <laughs> on cats. He didn't say cats. Okay, because a pope started one against cats and they believe that's what caused the bubonic plague. Well, that is because go he got it in his fucking notes. head that cats are the devil. We gotta put that one in the notes, not that one. <laughs> that last bonsoir sounded like Miss Piggy. Bonsoir! Bonsoir! Pope war on cats. Cats <laughs> started the plague. Because you think about it, there are less cats to catch rats. One thing leads to another, and an entire population of Europe is dead. Oh boy. <laughs> Remarkably. Andrew was not satisfied by this response and continued to press his cause, even after Giovanna became pregnant, potentially ensuring that one of Carabere's heirs would, in fact, someday wear the Neapolitan crown. <laughs> Andrew, I'm not. I'm not a. Uh, I'm not a genealogist, but I, I can tell you that's not his kid. <laughs> Andrew refused to let up. We'll get into that later. <laughs> he began making veiled threats toward Giovanna, who, in return, apparently taunted him mercilessly. As a response. <laughs> he bullied and insulted everyone at court who wasn't a member of his personal household. Joffrey. He freed the Pipinis, three brothers who had been imprisoned for terrorizing the country, and offered them knighthoods if they promised to take up his cause. The Pepinis? The Pepinis. They sound like a bad Renfair act. Yeah, they sound like jugglers that steal all your shit. <laughs> that, like, spread disease through Not the fair. Not bashing the jugglers, it's just a sleight of hand thing. Yeah. Uh. To say that he was unpopular in Naples would be a vast understatement. On September 18th, 1345, after spending an evening of drinking and dancing with his buddies, Andrew returned to his rooms. Giovanna was already there, apparently fast asleep in bed. Andrew was just getting ready to join her when a servant came to the door, telling him to come quickly to see a courier with important papers he needed to sign. Andrew hurried out into the gallery, where he was seized by a group of armed men. <laughs> they strung a rope around his neck and dragged him to a balcony, where they dangled him over the railing. Because this is not enough. In, Yo. in the garden below, several men grabbed his ankles and pulled in an effort to speed up the strangling process. Yo, they vanilla iced him. <laughs> While this was happening, Andrew's nurse, Isabella the Hungarian, stumbled on the scene. Her screams scattered the attackers and roused the royal household. But it was uh, too late. Andrew was already dead. He died? They killed him. They literally killed him. Oh, the plot thickens. Giovanna, six months pregnant and 19 years old, was a widow. She was also the prime suspect in her husband's murder. Well, dun dun dun. Well, I mean, your husband was a shit. <laughs> yeah. Pepini. Can't just be a politician and free your, your pepini. 
the Papini boys. I swear to God, I see it now. It's a really, Woo. really shitty Ren Fair act. <laughs> like, ugh. Woo. Rumors began to swirl in the wake of Andrew's death. Some described the queen as being unable to cry and guiltily refusing to make eye contact with anyone. Others said that she immediately fled the castle where Andrew had died out of fear that her involvement in his death might be discovered. Still more said that she neglected Andrew's corpse for three days until the canon at the local cathedral took it on himself to bury the body. All of these things were untrue. There are dated letters with Giovanna's seal on them that prove that she remained in the castle after Andrew's death. And historical record shows that he was interred the day after his murder. But they made for such salacious gossip. Fucking rumors. That people believed them anyway. Certainly. They Meghan Markle her. <laughs> Certainly there were some elements that made Giovanna look less than innocent. Aside from having spent several years openly loathing her husband, there was also the somewhat damning fact that after Andrew had been lured from the rooms he shared with Giovanna, someone had locked the door from the inside so that he couldn't get back in. But... There was nothing that conclusively tied her to the attack. Of course not. I, I, honestly, he sounds like such a shit that she probably literally had nothing to do with it. Yeah, there were plenty of people who hated him. <laughs> like, him just, like, bashing everyone who wasn't Hungarian. Yeah. While you're living in Naples. She died, I bet, like, when he died, she was like, fuck, this is awesome, but fuck. But I'm <laughs> pregnant with his baby. I don't think this is. Less than two days after the murder, a man named Tommaso Membriccio was arrested in connection with the crime. In their zeal to avenge Andrew's murder, prosecutors skipped an actual interrogation in favor of public torture that involved the removal of the prisoner's tongue. Didn't ask him anything. <laughs> Didn't interrogate him. Skip straight. To cutting off his tongue. We're doing this, but we're letting Bell Gunnis get away with shit. <laughs> they w they got sloppy in the 600 uh, years in between. <laughs> uh, 550. This created a problem, because although it was very clear that Tommaso hadn't acted alone, the violence inflicted on him by his captors meant he couldn't name any names. Cut off his tongue. Would you look at that? Well, here's your problem. Was this simply an <laughs> oversight on the part of the over-enthusiastic torturers? Or were they trying to protect someone by making sure that Tommaso couldn't identify any of his co-conspirators? Don't knock someone's kink. <laughs> <laughs> I want to cut off his tongue! <sighs> oh, shit, we needed that. Whoops. Can we put it back? You're, you're last in line next time. It was rumored that Philippa, the Catanian, and Raymond of Campania were somehow involved. The Catanian. Some thought that by having Tommaso's tongue cut out, Giovanna was ensuring not only her own safety, but the safety of her two favorites. That's a lot of speculating. Also, it wasn't her call no. to cut off his tongue? I mean... Speculation. One plus two does not equal C. Correct, it does not. <laughs> the Hungarians were furious and demanded a papal inquiry into Andrew's death. The Pope agreed to launch one, but then proceeded to drag his feet on the matter. Andrew's older brother, Louis, Louis, who was now king of Hungary, began to talk about invading Naples. 
International tensions heightened, and things seemed pretty grim for a few months. Then, on December 25th, 1345, Giovanna gave birth to a healthy son. By producing an heir, and a male heir at that... With nothing like him. <laughs> Giovanna could finally imagine the possibility of a stable nation. She named the child Charles Martel, and appointed Isabel the Hungarian as his nurse, a move that was, no doubt, intended to placate her Hungarian in-laws. Some placating was definitely in order. The same emissaries sent to inform the Hungarian crown of their adorable new family member were also tasked with negotiating Giovanna's way out of certain clauses in her nuptial treaty. Ooh. The queen, having secured the line of succession, was hoping to remarry because her husband is dead. The man Giovanna wanted to take as her second husband was none other than her hot blonde cousin, Louis of Taranto. This astonished exactly no one, since there had been uh, there had long been speculation that the two were romantically involved. Mm. Some even went so far as to say that Louis was the real father of Giovanna's child. What I say? I know you did say the baby come out blonde. Whatever the truth was. Giovanna's remarriage so soon after Andrew's death wasn't a great look. On the other hand, it might have been the threat of a Hungarian invasion that pushed her to find a new husband right away. Louis, after all, was not just a pretty face. He was also a seasoned warrior, and although Giovanna's education had covered a lot of bases, military command was not something she'd learn. Or, it's really good dick. Quite possible. And she tested, I mean, they're cousins, so maybe she, like, did a test ride of it a couple years back and was like, yeah, this, this works for me. I mean, my husband's long dead. Long suspected I romance. had a baby. <laughs> I could, use, Maybe it's could use something in my warm pocket at night. Given the political upheaval, it made sense that she wanted to secure her champion's loyalties by marrying him. Not that marriage had ever made Andrew particularly loyal. So Andrew been cheap and cheap. They, they fucking... Yeah, they're fucking everybody other. but each other. Yeah, that's pretty much... That's how it went. I mean... 1300s. Still feeling... Right? Still feeling very Game of Thronesy. Yes, I know. Plus, again, Louis of Taranto was just really spectacularly hot. Which was exactly what Giovanna needed. As the palpable investigation continued, another faction of Giovanna's family began plotting against her. Robert and Charles of Dorazzo, who, along with the Tarantos and Louis of Hungary, were also Giovanna's cousins. So many fucking cousins in this story, sometimes quite literally. <laughs> fucking cousins. Saw the turmoil at the Neapolitan court as a chance to make their own grab at power. Claiming to be very concerned about finding justice for Andrew, an interest that had suddenly sprung up in six months after his murder, the Durazzo brothers went to Naples to stir up some shit. They did their utmost to turn popular opinion against the queen, which frankly wasn't that hard. The ongoing delays in the palpable inquest made it seem as if Giovanna had something to hide. As the population grew restless, court seneschal Raymond of Campagno issued a decree that forbade civilians from openly carrying weapons in public. <laughs> no open carry. On March 6th, of 1346, Raymond was ambushed while trying to enforce this decree and taken prisoner by the Dorazos. Having learned a thing or two from the non-interrogation of Tommaso Mambriccio, 
the Durazzo brothers immediately removed Raymond's tongue. They then had him publicly confess by nodding his head along to various statements, including the naming of his alleged co-conspirators. The people he listed off included his own wife, Philippa the Catanian, as well as his granddaughter, Sancia. The mob, enraged by this 14th century predecessor of fake news, began trying to attack the castle, shouting, Death to the whore queen! And surrender the traitors! Boo! <laughs> Boo! Boo! <laughs> they got turned. Boo! <laughs> they grabbed Raven and cut off his tongue and made Damn. him nod along to statements. Yo, I like Raymond. I know. Uh, he didn't did deserve that. Exactly. I mean, the no open carry is one thing, but like if shit's open getting crazy carry. in the streets, then that makes sense. Yeah. Like you're trying to That's wild. rule these people and keep them alive. Damn. Damn. Giovanna eventually made the difficult decision to hand the accused over to the Durazzos, who in turn promised that the captives would be kept safe until the chief justice of the kingdom arrived to investigate. They lie. It didn't take the Durazzos long to break their promise, though. Their ally, Hugo del Bazzo, took the prisoners out to sea and tortured them in full view of the Neapolitan shore. So that's Philippa and their granddaughter. Got tortured. Yeah. At sea. Looking. Who are these dudes doing this again? These are the tongue dudes, right? This is, yeah, the Durazzos. The Durazzos can't be trusted, man. No, these are her cousins. Fuck the Durazzos. Yeah, these are her cousins. This is some Jersey Shore shit. (laughs) Yep. Meanwhile, in the east, two forces were preparing to invade Naples. The Hungarians and the Black Death. Only one of them would make people poop blood. (laughs) Presumably. I mean, I don't know what kind of spooky shit Louis of Hungary was capable of. I did not know where that was going. (laughs) Both would arrive in early... 1348 and changed the future of the Neapolitan crown forever. Wow. As Louis of Hungary made his way across the Italian countryside, conquering towns and villages as he went, the Neapolitans had to figure out what to do. The Durazzos, who had initially promised to set their differences with the queen aside and fight with their fellow Neapolitans, defected to the enemy camp. Two of Louis of Taranto's brothers, Robert and Philip, quickly followed suit. So even some of the Tarantos are going... The Tarantos. Meanwhile, Giovanna decided that the best course of action was to lose the battle in order to win the war. Pregnant with Louis's child, the queen fled her castle in the middle of the night with Avignon, the site of the palpal court at the time, as her eventual destination. Okay. Louis of Taranto, who was fighting the Hungarians in Capua when he received news about the queen's hasty departure, chose to do the same. So they both fucking yeah. ran. Yeah, bounce. We gotta go. To survive. Before leaving, Giovanna had made the heartbreaking decision to leave her toddler son, Charles Martel, behind. Considering that she was often described as a loving and attentive mother, the <sighs> queen could not have made this decision lightly. Probably not. She would have known that her flight would be difficult and dangerous, possibly even deadly, to a small child. She would also have known that the Hungarians would take good care of her son. After all, he was Andrew's son, too. After assessing the situation, she decided that it was safer to not bring him with Was he? They think he is. <laughs> they think he is. Was he? He wasn't so blonde that they wouldn't take yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. On January 19th, 1348, Charles of Dorazzo and Robert of Taranto 
led a procession of turncoat Neapolitan nobles into Aversa, just north of Naples, to greet their conquerors. King Louis of Hungary. Hey guys, kind of a weird question for you. Have you ever read or watched Game of Thrones? Charles of Durazzo. I mean, not yet, but I'm planning on it. Robert of Taranto. Yeah, I've already downloaded the first three seasons. Louis. Okay, so you've never heard of, for example, The Red Wedding? Robert. Is that when a girl gets her period on her wedding night? LOL. Louis. LOL, totally! Anyway, you guys are invited to over for a special dinner on Tuesday! Louis was not a man to let bygones be bygones, and he had a long list of grievances against his cousins. In spite of the fact that they openly betrayed their queen in favor of the Hungarian invaders, the night ended with the arrest of the Neapolitan nobles. Robert and Philip of Taranto were thrown in prison, as were Louis and Robert of Durazzo, the betraying cousins. Charles of Durazzo was condemned to death and then executed in exactly the same spot where Andrew had been murdered. Wow. On that balcony. Wow. That's uh, a grudge. Apparently, their calculated risk was ill-calculated. As Giovanna was traveling towards Avignon, the Black Death was doing the same. It had arrived in Sicily the previous fall, in a fleet of Genoese vessels carrying the most dangerous cargo. Sailors. Rats. Sailors. Many of them already desperately ill. Sailors are so dangerous. <laughs> Sailors, many of them already semen. desperately ill. Semen. It's very, full of very semen. ill semen. There's semen on the floor. Stumble down the gangplank and into the dockyards of Messina. Semen. Within days, the plague held the city in its grip. Because of semen. Because of dirty semen. By the spring of 1348, it had spread to the rest of Italy and beyond. Fuck. The general population, weakened by years of famine, died in droves. Yeah. Mortality rates varied by region, but in some cities, like Florence, it hovered between 50 and 90 percent. Thousands of small villages were wiped Ooh. off the map through a combination of people dying and fleeing. That's not good for her approval rating. In many areas, the population wouldn't reach pre-plague rates again until the 17th century. Wait, we're in the third... Wait. We're in, like, the 14th century right now, right? Yes. It takes 300 years Fuck. for those areas to have populations come back. Fuck. Yeah. Serious shit. The plague moved swiftly and horribly. Some contemporary accounts describe people who were healthy at sunrise and dead by sunset. Those who died so swiftly were fortunate, though. In most cases, the illness, which was incredibly painful and debilitating, lasted for several days. Because of the entirely justified fear of contagion, many people had no one to nurse them while they were sick. They died alone and terrified, Ugh. without even the spiritual comfort of the church's last rites. Ugh. There were so many dead bodies that cities didn't have enough room to bury them. In Avignon, Pope Clement VI consecrated the Rhone River. Every day, hundreds of stinking corpses choked the river and slowly floated downstream to the open sea. He blessed the river so that people could put the dead bodies in it and float out to sea. That is insane. That's how many bodies there were. Could you imagine seeing that? No. No, because that's not a pretty death anyway. And then being in the water makes things worse. Like, it must have been that's a sight horrendous. and smell. Oh my god. This was the Avignon that Giovanna entered with great fanfare on March 15th, 1348. At the head of her procession were the Bishop of Florence and the Chancellor of Provence, followed by 18 cardinals. 
Next came Giovanna, dressed in a gold and crimson robe, her blonde hair gleaming in the morning sun. So it could be blonde, because she was blonde. Mm, okay. She was a known beauty. The poet Petrarch had described her as... Picard? No. <laughs> described her as exquisite and enchanting. Boccaccio had called her fair and goodly to look upon. And her charms were on full display during her march through the town. Louis, who was a few paces behind her, managed to look just as alluring. With his blonde hair cut short and wearing a tight Spanish jacket, he was, as one observer put it, as beautiful as the day. I'm feeling some, uh, some, uh, what's it called vibes? Lannister. Mm-hmm. Very Lannister-y. Mm-hmm. Red and gold. This colorful parade was the first bright spot Avignon had seen in months, and the people People turned, are dead. <laughs> people turned out in droves to watch the young queen make her way through the town. Oh, so it was a super spreader event. Cool. After being driven out of her own city and spending months fleeing the Hungarian forces, the adoration of the people of Avignon must have been a balm for her soul. But she also knew that at the end of that long walk, she would be tried in the papal court for the murder of her husband. If the Pope found her to be innocent, she would have a chance of retaking Naples. If she was found guilty, she faced certain death. Giovanna asked for permission to speak on her own behalf. Wow. An extremely unusual request in the papal den for men. That's capitalized. Papal den for men. Den for men. Gross. The Pope, who was also dressed to the nines in a triple tiara, white silk robes, and gold embroidered slippers, granted the queen the right to defend herself. She was the only woman in a room full of dudes who were absolutely not accustomed to taking anything women said seriously. Now this is hilarious. Giovanna. I'm not here to tell you that I loved Andrew because LOL, we all know that's not true. But I swear that I didn't kill him. As proof, I offer the fact that I just calmly walked through the plague-ridden streets of your city. If I were guilty, would God not have immediately struck me down with a bad case of the pestilence? I gotta go. And yet, I don't have a single boobo on me. Gentlemen, just look at my smooth, boobo-free neck. Boobo. In conclusion, in conclusion, God has already judged me innocent, and who are you to go against his wisdom? Boobo. The Pope. I, wow, I actually can't argue with that. There's literally no argument that he, she used God against them. The papal court found Giovanna not only innocent, but in fact, completely above the suspicion of guilt. Which is another theme that we have here of a lady That's being like, That's a bad bitch. Like, you know what? Yeah, you're right. That is how it is. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. All right. I mean, if you say it, it must be true. <laughs> and then just over a month after Giovanna's arrival in Avignon, the Pope issued a papal bull legitimizing her marriage to Louis of Taranto. A few weeks later, he declared that Louis of Hungary should get the heck out of Naples. Having followed through on exacting revenge for his brother's murder, Louis of Hungary was just about ready to retreat anyway. It turned out that managing a kingdom whose population was both dying of the plague and also deeply hostile of their new overlords was more work than he wanted to put in. Especially Pass. since he had his own affairs to handle back home. Right? Like, you know what? Like, no, I'm good. You know what? I did the thing. I'm out. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> you can head back now. The queen spent the next few weeks preparing for her homecoming, dispatching letters to various high-ranking officials to solicit their help in reclaiming her crown. On June 30th, she gave birth to a daughter, Catherine. On August 1st, the queen, her husband, and their new baby boarded their fleet in Nice. 
On August 17th, they disembarked just outside of Naples. Although some Hungarian forces remained in Naples, Giovanna's army was eventually able to defeat Louis of Hungary and take back her kingdom. Hell yeah. In just a few short years, the Neapolitans had gone from yelling, death to the horror of a queen, to welcoming her back in open arms. It was nothing short of miraculous. I bet she's like, that's fucking right. What's my name? Giovanna, seriously, disrespect me all you want, but show me a king capable of doing half the shit I did, let alone doing it while pregnant and or right after giving birth. It's fine. I'll wait. Bitch. I'll give it to her. I wish that I could tell you that everything was smooth sailing from then on out, but Giovanna's life continued to be an endless series of obstacles and tragedies. Her young son, Charles Martel, had died while she was in Avignon. Oh, she fuck. didn't bring him with, and he died. Did he die of plague? Uh, Probably no. It's cholera. I think he just got sick though. Colitis. Louis, fearful that his nephew would meet the same fate as his brother, had sent the toddler to Hungary. Ah, that's what happened. But Giovanna had been right in her suspicions that her child could not survive the difficulties and dangers of medieval travel, and yep. Charles Martel died soon after his arrival in Hungary. Fuck. He was just over two years old. Why would you send the baby? It was one of the dudes Stupid. in the castle made that decision. Yo, she thought her baby was going to be safe and then comes back and finds out they did the one thing she they said not to do. sent it off, yeah, and he died. In early 1349, Joanna's baby daughter Catherine also died. Around that same time, the queen's second marriage began to fall apart. Louis of Taranto, who had at first seemed so promising as a husband, turned out to be just as power-hungry as Andrew. Of course. He brutalized Giovanna and publicly accused her of cheating on him. The queen, in a desperate bid to keep the peace, denied having been unfaithful and agreed to have him crowned as king consort. Ever mindful of her need for an heir and likely terrified of further angering her husband, the queen continued to share a bed with Louis and, in early 1350, gave birth to another daughter, Francois. On May 27, 1352, Giovanna and Louis celebrated his coronation with an elaborate procession through the streets of Naples, only to arrive home and learn that their child had suddenly taken ill and died during their brief absence. They went on a parade. For his stupid for ass. For him to be king. And he got sick and died during the parade. Fucking yo. <laughs> Men be pissing me off. In the year... <laughs> Although this is playtime, so that it people is, dropping is like, kind of a thing. Yeah, but, like, she's here trying to cater she's to his ass. She's just trying. Like, yeah. bending over backwards for his bullshit. Yeah. Go fuck yourself. Yeah. In the years that followed, Louis became even more tyrannical, doing his best to undermine her authority and impose his own rule over the kingdom. It what was a her bitch. kingdom from jump. What a bitch. And then, on May 24th, 1362, after 12 tumultuous years of marriage... Giovanna lost her second husband to the Black Death. I think it's like my dad's birthday. May 24th? I think so. <laughs> that dude died of the Black Plague. <laughs> Fuck you. After Louis' death, <laughs> Giovanna was finally able to rule her country as she saw fit. The queen delights in governing, the Archbishop of Naples wrote to the Pope. She wants to do everything because she has waited so long for this moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she was fucking raised for this. Yeah. Giovanna excelled at legislation and policy. It was clear that the years she'd spent learning from Robert the Wise hadn't been wasted. This is so Game of Thrones. Yo, I just thought just it was Just let a woman rule. 
basically, I know that she didn't kill her first husband because she put up with that asshole shit the whole time. Right? She could have had him offed immediately. Making the best of what she's got. Naples flourished under her hand. Well, as much as a nation decimated by the plague could flourish. And although she couldn't upend the patriarchy single-handedly, she did create a nation where, by several metrics, women were able to succeed in ways that they couldn't elsewhere. Far more medical licenses were granted to women in Naples than anywhere else in medieval Europe. I mean... 34 in the 14th century alone, as compared to 4 in Florence. Clearly, the queen was doing something right. Could they read? (laughs) I've heard of places that had doctors that couldn't read, so... (laughs) They survived the plague. I mean, yeah, sure. I mean, yay female doctors, but at the same time... (laughs) I mean, that means women were getting better treatment. Yeah, this is true. Flat out. This Whether is, they were this reading is very, or not, very maybe true. Maybe they have, like, the, the herbal medicines that they've learned from, leeches. you know. Oh, God, leeches. But Giovanna still had to grapple with the fact that she had no heir. Louis' death also meant that she needed a new battlefield champion, just in case the Hungarians or anyone else tried to invade. So, at the age of 36, she decided to marry again. This time around, she chose James IV of Majorca. His two major recommendations were that A, he was technically king of his own country and therefore probably wouldn't try to usurp Naples, and B, he wasn't directly related to her and therefore, according to the beliefs of the time, would be more likely to provide her with a surviving heir. Um, also, that's mar- just fact. <laughs> also, marrying cousins hadn't worked out very well for Giovanna in the past. The only catch was that Majorca had been invaded by Aragon when James was a teen, and he'd recently spent 14 years as a prisoner in a small iron cage. This, to say the least, did not make for the healthiest of husbands. I was going to say, he is not okay. James was subject to frequent physical illnesses, and the combination of toxic masculinity and a decade and a half of severe trauma had left him extremely troubled. He was given to frequent outbursts and was physically violent with his wife, Sometimes even publicly. Things became so bad that several family members had to sleep in the royal chambers in order to keep Giovanna safe. The queen was advised to stop sharing a bed with James, but she was so desperate for an heir that she persisted. Sadly, her only pregnancy while married to James ended in miscarriage. Get rid of him. Throw the whole man out. Oh, yes. Eventually, James left Naples to join Edward the Black Prince of England and Henry II of Castile in a war against the Kingdom of Aragon. I'm sorry, Edward the Black Prince? Of England. What a name. Yeah. After a resounding defeat, James IV of Majorca died of his chronic illness in Aragon. Joanna was free again, but still without an heir. This woman. She's just trying to take care of her kingdom. I hate this idea that, like, she's not successful if she doesn't have a fucking heir. Like, Like, just pass it on to somebody else. She's running it just fine. Like, find someone you trust. Yeah, no, it's like all bloodlines. Monarchies. It's literal bullshit. The period after James IV's death is considered by most historians to be the most stable and prosperous part of Giovanna's rule. She helped finance the papacy's return to Rome, hosted the Byzantine emperor, and involved herself in the most minute aspects of governing. She even found time to marry again, this time to Duke Otto of Brunswick. She was 48 to his 58 and far outranked him, so he was pretty happy to be bossed around by her. 
He was also a seasoned warrior, something the country always needed, even in times of apparent peace. My brain literally said, he was also a sub. (laughs) Yeah, I I heard that too. (laughs) Happy to be bossed around. Yeah, no, he's he's subby. War general. Just just old. (laughs) Chillin'. Giovanna seems to have had a few happy years in her fourth marriage. My God, I hope she had a few happy years because she certainly deserved them. I hope he laid that dick down. She needs it. But then the Pope died, and shit went sideways. The papal court had recently returned to Rome, and things were tenuous. The last few popes had been French, since, you know, the court was in Avignon. And most of the cardinals were French as well. When the Pope died, the Romans insisted that the next one should be Roman. To underscore their point, they rioted outside the papal palace. In the spirit of compromise, the College of Cardinals elected a Neapolitan archbishop who took the name Urban IV. Urban. Urban. U-R-B-A-N. Urban. Urban IV. Since he had been plucked out of relative obscurity and elevated to the rank of pope by the grace of the cardinals... Who the fuck is this guy? They assumed they would be able to control him. They were very wrong. Yeah, if he's out of nowhere and suddenly in power, you were asking for it at that point. College of Cardinals. Uh, so this was a mistake. We want to redo. This new guy is Pope now. We're calling him Clement the Seventh. Urban. He's the Antichrist. College. Uh, actually, the technical term is anti-pope. Urban. It's too late. You've unleashed the beast. Suck it up, Frenchies, because I'm not going down without a fight. LOL. But seriously, you're all excommunicated, and we're going to have a war. There's your war. Eh. It might be urban. Nah. It's literally a war against cats. Like, not human beings. Straight up cats. How'd you look it up? Yeah. Giovanna supported Clement VII's claim to popedom, but not everyone in Naples agreed with her decision. Urban IV declared her rule to be null and void, and improbably, some people took this proclamation seriously. Catherine of Siena, a future saint who claimed to only poop once a month, what is going on in her pipes, declared that Giovanna was demonically misguided. She was not alone. Says the bitch who doesn't shit. She was not alone in this opinion. Sensing the burgeoning unrest in Naples, Louis of Hungary made a final power move. The same guy came back again. Fucking Louis. He just waited. He turned Giovanna's prospective heir, her cousin Charles, against her and financed his invasion of Naples. Louis of Hungary. LOL. I'm back, bitches. Fuck that guy. Yeah. This bitch shits once a month. Get out of here. So her cousin, Charles, could have been her heir and is turned against her by Louis of Hungary. Charles sashayed his way across Italy, his path eased by the governments of various cities that preferred to surrender immediately rather than fight. He soon entered Naples and, after a few days of fighting, took the queen prisoner. Giovanna, who had fought for so long to keep her kingdom safe, was murdered by yet another treacherous cousin, on July 27th, 1382. Because the details of her death were kept secret, no one is sure exactly how she died. Some say she was strangled with a silken cord while praying, and others claim she was smothered between two feather mattresses. Fuck. Because she was in a state of excommunication, according to Urban IV at least, she couldn't be buried in consecrated ground. Instead, her body was thrown down a well at the church of Santa Chiara. 
What the fuck? <laughs> what the actual fuck? They threw her body. How big was the well? No, but like, they're not using that one anymore. Like, I'm thinking it's, like, one of those, like, like normal-looking wells, not, like, a giant one. Like, it's a normal fucking well that they just throw her and she's, like, ping-ponging off the walls. That's such bullshit. What a way to fucking go. <laughs> I'm so mad. All those cousins did her dirty. No. Every ma'am. cousin was a fuck-up. Don't fuck with your cousins. It was a something ending for a queen who had once been the most powerful woman in Europe. Giovanna's life had never been easy, and the brutal details of her death are no exception. In spite of this, she managed to hold on to and stabilize her country for nearly four decades, a feat that few kings can claim. Against all odds, she survived invasions, plagues, and three terrible husbands. Otto of Brunswick, who by all accounts was not terrible, survived her by 16 years and never remarried. Yo, I bet that was, like, the best relationship she ever had. (laughs) Yep. Historians have been shitting on her for the past 600 years or so. Of course. Her her notorious reputation and alleged sluttiness are usually the first things they mention. But the truth is that she did amazingly well with what she had. It's well past time that we recognize her tenacity and bravery. Long live the fucking queen. God forbid. God forbid a female ruler has the same sex drive as a male ruler. God for fucking bid. Wow. Thank you, Drea. You're so welcome. I love all the crossovers. Yeah. I mean, for for really, really fun. I hate that the theme here is that if you're a female ruler that likes to get eight, you're a whore. And it's like, you know what? She had a healthy sexual appetite. Sorry, not sorry, yeah. assholes. Sorry, yeah. your dick cheese isn't enough for me. Fuckers. It's highly upsetting. I hate it. It's, I hate it. Like, and that's, and it's not just female rulers. Like, any woman who has a voracious or yeah. any semblance of a sexual appetite is considered to be a slut. A slut or a whore. Like, they literally called her a whore. In the 1340s. What, like, what I love is that one little tidbit that. In nine months, a woman can produce one baby, and a man can produce as fucking many as he can. Countless. How many orgasms keep going. can a man have in the fucking Yeah. So it's month, just like this, this idea that it's like where the default is kind of annoying. <laughs> like, and she tried so hard she did. to just have a baby she did. so that she could raise it and teach uh, it how to rule this country properly. Ugh. This kingdom. Ugh. Sucks. Thank God I'm... And Philippa and Raymond... Losing those two sucks. I was like, damn! What a story. Yeah. Yeah. And the plague got mentioned, which... Like... It's always fun when the plague gets mentioned. I, I thought it was really interesting, the whole, like, oh, her... The, guy, the man who raised her, which I think was her grandfather, was, like, considered such a great ruler when, like, the weather was good and crops yeah. grew. Yeah. Yeah. Like how much of there's nothing that to plane. do. And it's then, like it's like fucking Trump running around going like, you know, oh I had the best this and the best that and oh, the best yeah. that. And He's it's like probably, it has nothing to do with you. Those things are contingent on what happened in the years before. Right, right. Like and that's you, like and you're not you can't claim credit for the weather. But also 
like with that shit, like he's he's probably gonna he's already trying to claim like this vaccine is like credit needs to go to him. Like credit's mine. You didn't do shit. You didn't do shit. You were not part of that process. Actually, the only part of the process that he was is letting it become such an outbreak in America that created more of a demand for a vaccine faster. That's your contribution. Go fuck yourself. Letting thousands of people die so that you could speed up a fucking vaccine. Cool. Anyway, thanks for listening to the Wow to Podcast. Wait, we have a phrase! Oh, shit. I forgot the phrase. It's Both of them are very short. (laughs) You get to pick which one you want. Okay. We've got, for Pete's sake... Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And we've got Charlie Horse. Charlie Horse. Done. That was one I came up with with my partner. I was just like, why do we call it that? Charlie Horse. Why is it called? I hate getting Charlie Horse. We have a couple of options, but they all go back to baseball. Fuck. I don't want it to go back to baseball. I enjoy the term Charlie Horse. Don't take this from me. <laughs> so many things have been taken from me. And it's not going to stop. That will be the rest of your life. Charlie Horse. People taking things from you. Okay. In the 1880s, multiple publications referred to the term Charlie Horse, often capitalized as capital C, Charlie Horse. And you can spell it either C H A R L E Y or L I E. As something familiar to baseball players who reportedly used it to describe certain muscle injuries or pains. Two ball players, Jack Glasscock. And Joe Quest are each credited as the originator of the phrase. These are not real people. They're baseball players. <laughs> These are not real Jack people. Jack Glasscock. <laughs> this is a lie. <laughs> and Joe Quest. <laughs> Those are some names. I would hate to be their kid. <laughs> I would hate to be a woman with the last name Glasscock. Like, what are you going to do with that? Yes! West. Yes! Glasscock. I have one. Mr. and Mrs. Glasscock? I personal question. What if they, what if they named Mrs. their son... Mrs. Glasscock and little Junior Glasscock. What if they named their son Richard? <laughs> Dick, Dick Glasscock! <laughs> you know he had a cousin that was mean and did that to their kid? Dick Glasscock. Cousins, am I right? Oh, shit. A version of the Glasscock story (laughs) appears in a July 1886 issue of a West Virginia newspaper called the Wheeling Daily Intelligencer. What year is this? 1886. Okay. Baseballists (laughs) have invented a brand new disease called Charlie Horse. It consists of a peculiar contraction and hardening of the muscles and tendons of the thigh, to which ball players are liable from the sudden starting and stopping and chasing balls. Jack Glasscock is said to have originated the name because the way the men limped around reminded him of an old horse he once owned named Charlie. No. We've got <laughs> I a, refuse. We've got I a, We've got a couple of versions. I fucking refuse to accept this. You're going to you're going to pick your favorite when we go through all I, these different options. N- these are so stupid. I'm so angry. These are so <laughs> stupid. Other accounts suggest Glasscock adopted this phrase from his father, who took care of Charlie, the horse. When the dad saw his son limping due to this kind of leg injury, he supposedly remarked, Why, John, my boy, what is the matter? You go just like the old Charlie horse? 
That is a stupid sentence. Okay. The quest story has a few variants as well. Outfielder Hugh Nickel told the Chicago Tribune in 1906 that Quest coined the phrase in 1882, which predates Glasscock's story. <laughs> Were baseball players in the late 1800s just fucking cartoon characters? While playing for the Chicago White Stockings. Did you know that they were called the White Stockings? Like, I know Red Sox is a thing. This is, this is just... White Stockings this as is a, a baseball player? This is a comedy. <laughs> this is, a, like, it is literally just a comedy. Apparently, the teammates spent an off day watching horse races on the south side. According to a tip they received from the previous night, a horse named Charlie was practically guaranteed to win. The tip was touted as a cinch. It simply couldn't lose, and we all got on. Nickel recalled, noting that everyone placed bets on Charlie except for Quest. The other players teased him for his choice. But Quest got the last laugh. Although Charlie had a sizable lead from the beginning, he ultimately stumbled and injured himself, going around the last turn and lost. Quest allegedly told his teammates, Look at your old Charlie horse now! Per Nichols' account, he kept up the ribbing the next day and even exclaimed, There's your old Charlie horse! He made it all right if it hadn't been for that old Charlie horse! when a teammate strained himself in a similar way while running to second base. Another theory. I'll accept that. I know, that one feels a little more believable. I will accept that one. I absolutely do not accept the first one. (laughs) I know, it's so bad. (laughs) Fuck you. Like, wow, you really want credit that bad. Fuck you. Another theory is similar to the Glasscock story. I love saying that name. In June 1889, the Grand Rapids Daily Democrat reported... Years ago, Joe Quest was employed as an apprentice in the machine shop of Quest and Shaw in Newcastle. His father, who no was... No relation? <laughs> in... No relation. No relation. Quest and Shaw, no relation. In Principal Newcastle. Vagina, no relation. His father, who was one of the proprietors of the firm, had an old white horse by the name of Charlie. Doing usage in pulling heavy loads had stiffened the animal's legs so that he walked as if troubled with strained tendons. Afterwards, when Quest became a member of the Chicago Club, he was troubled with others with a peculiar stiffness of the legs, which brought to mind the ailment of the old white horse Charlie. Joe said that the ball players troubled with the ailment hobbled exactly as the old horse. And as no one seemed to know what the trouble was, Quest dubbed it Charlie Horse. It's worth noting that Charlie Horse initially seemed to refer to more serious athletic injuries rather than the painful but short-lived spasms people often experience in the middle of the night. As a January 1887 article in the Democrat and Chronicle in Rochester, New York, noted, Let a man suffer from a genuine attack of Charlie Horse, and he is lucky if he gets over it in a season, while it may cling to him through life. That's how serious it was. Charlie Horses were so bad you could live with them forever. Another name origin theory is that Charlie Horse comes from an old horse named Charlie that dragged equipment at the White Stockings ballpark. So maybe the White Stockings ballpark, the old horse Charlie dragged equipment around. Apparently, injured players would compare their limping to Charlie's gait and call the leg muscle injury a Charlie Horse. Okay. Some have theorized that it was Quest specifically who made that comment in reference to the horse while playing for the White Stockings. Yet another theory is that Charlie Horse referred to pitcher Charles Old Hoss Radburn, 
who experienced bad cramps while playing in the 1880s. The Washington Post published this anecdote in 1907. Just as Charlie passed third base, something seemed to crack in his leg, and he came down to the home plate limping, and evidently in pain. A teammate named Nova, who had sprung from the player's bench in excitement, Nova? Nova, rushed up to him. What's the matter with you, Charlie Hoss? He shouted, combining Charlie's given name and nickname. My leg is tied up in knots, said Charlie. As from that day to this, lameness in baseball players have been called Charlie Haas or Charlie or Charles Horse. Others have offered an even simpler explanation. According to a July 1887 edition of the Boston Globe, the name is said to owe its origin to the fact that a player afflicted with it when attempting to run does so much after the fashion of a boy astride a wooden horse, sometimes called a Charlie horse, as in a hobby horse. While we may never know the true origin of the term Charlie horse, one thing is certain. They hurt like hell, so stay hydrated and remember to stretch. Okay. He, two thoughts. I, okay. I'll accept that it's about a horse while hearing all of that. One, I know that a lot of things throughout history either originated from either people of color or specifically black people or from a very, very racist connotation. So I'm really, really, really fucking glad that none of those have anything to do with a black person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's my brain was like, oh, fuck, what if it goes there? And that a Charlie horse is actually like old Ben. Yeah. Some bullshit like that. Yeah. Glad that that was not part of it. Thank God. Baseball's not my favorite, but all the stories come from baseball. Baseball players seem to have originated the phrase. Whether it was a horse or a person or some combination. If it was Glasscock or Quest. I like the Quest. I like, I enjoy Quest winning at a horse track because Charlie the horse fucked up and now we say Charlie horse. So weird. Is there, like... But, like, that's, 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 like, bros hanging out. Like, they would have one, like, little phrase, and then, like, all the baseball bros are calling Charlie horses. Like, especially if there's no word for that already. Yeah. Baseball, I do not get it. Baseball in, in, in that time period, so weird. So fucking weird to me. And just all the names and the, and the weird, like, little, like, cultish things that go around with baseball. The only thing I truly, truly enjoy about baseball is the All-American Women's League that came about during World War II. Hell yeah. That movie's great. The movie is fucking incredible. And I want to learn more about the true story. And I wish more black women were involved. But, you know. Future podcast I think they were. Episode. Unless I, I either made it up like thought about it with somebody like it would be really cool to do a black version of that they're either i was in the room doing... when you were talking about that okay as, okay as like that would be a really cool thing to do yeah i'd like a bipoc version of that hell yeah anyway thank you you're welcome i feel good <laughs> you you don't look like you believe no, that at all i don't that's I utter bullshit good no fuck Ugh, charlie horse anyway and now you know. Now I know. I I almost have come to. I have such a love hate relationship with this part of the podcast because there's so Most many of the time things. It's racist. <laughs> you wouldn't believe how many phrases have racist origins. There's so many things that I Most love that have just ripped from me. <laughs> well, you know, like I can't have you not know. No, that's the truth. that's that's why I love it because it's just like it's so cool knowing the truth behind things. Well, hey, 
On that note, thank you so much for listening to the Wild to Podcast. I am Samantha. That was Drea. We really appreciate every second that you are here with us listening or tuning in on Twitch. Uh, we are over the moon excited and we love you, like we say, from the bottom of our butts because they're bigger than our hearts. Find us on all social media at the Wauta Podcast. That's W-A-W-T-A. Wauta. What are we talking about? If you have any questions, concerns, something that you want us to talk about, or an urban legend or something that you have heard about in your years on this crazy, crazy earth, let us know. Send us an email at thewildtopodcast at gmail.com, and we will talk about it here on the podcast. Drea has been working tirelessly to add content to our Patreon. Please, 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 please. We've got tiers starting at $5. If there's interest for a dollar tier, we'll put one in there. Why not? Um, If people want to contribute that, please, we'll take it. You know, we, you know, we love doing this and we want to give you more. And to do that, we've got to invest. So, you know, that's our whole beg for money part of the segment. But truly, we want to deliver to you more wonderful and amazing content. Yeah. And especially during the holidays, if you're thinking kindly of us and are wondering what it is that we would appreciate, honestly, Patreon memberships would make our holidays and my birthday just happened. Like, all of that would be fabulous and fantastic. We would appreciate it so much. And it would motivate us to do some more fun stuff. Bonus content, photo sets, all that jazzy jazz. Yeah. And I'm not wearing my shirt right now, but we have merch. Uh, yeah. We have Walta t-shirts. We have House of the Slither Sister t-shirts. They're on our Redbubble. You can find the link below on our Twitch and also in all of our link trees across our social media platforms. Please check them out. We've got everything you can fucking think of. Redbubble is so amazing. And then they've got really great pricing and they're offering discounts. So check that out please Hell you yeah. know, sport some merch. I made the logos, so I like them. <laughs> I like our logos. And I got to give my opinion on it, so I love it too. I think both look very, very cool. Yeah. I mean, every step of the way, I was like, Dre, is this good? Dre, is this good? But, like, we, we, we put them together from scratch, so there are babies. So, yeah, for sure, if you like them, want to slap them on a shirt or a face mask, the masks are dope. They are dope. Yeah. So, yeah. Walter! 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 I'm gonna go watch my new TV. Hell yeah! <laughs> Hell yeah!